So, I heard about a small town somewhere in rural Ohio called Helltown that seems to be a hotspot for more urban legends and hauntings than you can shake a stick at. It appears to have all begun when, so the story goes, the government sealed the town off and boarded up the houses due to a chemical spill. This spill reportedly caused mutations not only to wildlife, including reports of a giant python, but also to people living in the area. Some people still even call it Mutant Town. Alongside stories of a crybaby bridge and the end of the world road, even stranger legends have grown. There is the abandoned school bus, deep in the woods, in which a serial killer took the lives of all its young passengers. Depending on who you talk to, the bus is either haunted by the screams of the children, their apparitions in the long vanished seats, or even the sight of the killer himself sat smoking at the back of the bus. Other tales tell of a satanic church with upside down crosses, and a strange basement dweller, a cemetery haunted by a ghost on a bench, and even a ghost hearse with one walking headlight which will chase you and then vanish. Have you heard the story of- and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This happened to start telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome all of you back. We're so happy you're here. We've missed you all so much. We've been to another country. It was lovely. We keep doing that. We do. Traveling, at least. Traveling. (laughs) This is the only international travel we've done this year. We went to Niagara Falls. It It was incredible. You should all go. And I have a weekly affirmation. What's that? I hope that one day you have a matchbox of your own with a fence of real chain link, a grill out on the patio, and a disposal in the sink. A washer and a dryer and an ironing machine in a tract house that we share somewhere that's green. I love that movie. (laughs) I am uh, giving you the I Wish song from Little Shop of Horrors this week uh, because that's my wish for you, that you all find your place in a tract house with the one you love and don't get eaten by a giant plant because that would be a hell town. Never trust a mean green mother from outer space. We're not doing outer space no. this week. <laughs> oh, no, we've had enough. <laughs> now, before we get to our stories this week, we do want to thank everybody for coming back. Thanks, everyone, for leaving ratings and reviews on iTunes, telling your friends, neighbors, grandparents, mailmen, male persons. I was about to say. <laughs> dog walkers, etc. about the show. We always appreciate that. You can... Find us on social media at Just a Story Pod or at our website, justastorypod.com, where you'll find links to all of our fun sources and materials we use for the show, as well as artwork and links to our merch store. And on our merch store, you can purchase merch. Crazy. I know. But there we have some of the illustrations for previous week's episodes available for purchase on many fine goods. Yes, yes. You'll also find a link to our Patreon page where you will get tons of extras. Uh, We will be posting soon our travel log from our Niagara Falls trip. You'll get to hear a fun story about... Barrels. Barrels. And the people that choose to go in them (laughs) over a giant waterfall. Which coincidentally is the title of the new micro history I'm working on. (laughs) Barrels and the people that choose to go in them. Then you need like a colon... (laughs) Subtitle, 
look at the socioeconomic and race relations between... In America. And Canada. Depending on which fall you go over. Oh, international relations based on plunges over Niagara Falls. The geopolitics of the long, peaceful border or something. Something like that. So if you do not want to hear about that, but want to hear some crazy stories, you can help out the show by helping support us on Patreon. And there's one more way you can get in touch with us. You can dial the Urban Legend Hotline. And now, since I've talked about Little Shop of Horrors, want somebody behind me going, doot. Like somebody, like, don't you think? Like a doo-wop group? Yeah. You gonna do that or? No, I'm good. Okay, fine. So you can call the Urban Legend Hotline, 512-222-3375. And once you dial that number, you will reach a voicemail line where you can tell us all your deepest, darkest stories. (laughs) I was about to say secrets, but I feel bad encouraging you to do that. Because sometimes we play them on the show, so... Only if you want to hear them Only on the if show. you want to hear them on the show. But you can call and tell us about your favorite scary story, urban legend, old wives' tale, young wives' tale, whatever you've got. All right, Sam. Back, All right, Jacob. Back to the story at hand. I'm in a very silly mood. This is a very silly story. <laughs> well, good. I bet we'll find a way to turn it around, though. Let's see. <laughs> so, have you ever heard of Helltown? I think that's what every teenager calls the town where they grew up. At least once in their diary. One website said, Helltown, no, not Cincinnati. No, no. It's like you have unresolved childhood issues. <laughs> but it is supposedly in Ohio. And I say supposedly, but it's actually a real place. I thought it was like Oz. No, it is a place you can legend trip to. Well, now we're going to have to travel again. So legend tripping is where you go to the site of a supposed urban legend. That has like a fixed location in the world. Uh, like people legend trip to go see Resurrection Mary. Yeah, or the Goat Man. Or the Jersey Devil, etc. Yeah, Area 51 could even count. But you can't go to Area 51. Right, I guess so. The border of the Area 51. Alien. The little alien. We can get a tchotchke. And who doesn't love a tchotchke? But let's Joni say- does, anyway. Oh, God. <laughs> we had a Fonzie reference the other day. <laughs> to god i'm not binge watching happy days Joni and chachi like turn the naked night off <laughs> so hell town hell town is a place let us say that she just got your driver's license and you want to impress your friends and so you might drive out to hell town in which state would we be in ohio oh so cincinnati's close Right. And now see the extra yeah. merit of that joke. Yeah. So apparently Helltown is the place where urban legends live. So it's just like a holding ground. I guess so. Want to see that lockup? It's like a sci-fi made-for-TV movie. <laughs> if you were to approach this abandoned town in the middle of the woods, you would find many burned-out buildings. On those burned-out buildings are maybe just the dilapidated abandoned ones. You would see official... U.S. government, no trespassing signs, plastered everywhere. We have no trespassing signs where I'm from, but the homeowners with the guns just tacked them up on the pine trees. I know, these are U.S. government. I find the other ones scarier. Yeah, but what are they hiding? Many people think that they are hiding mutants. Uh, No, they're at Xavier School for Gifted Children. Don't be ridiculous. These are different mutants. Okay, maybe then. There was a chemical spill. Like Alex Mack? Alex Mack is in Helltown. No. Is this what you're telling me? Like Daredevil. Okay. 
So there was a chemical spill that has caused mutations around the town. And this is one of the reasons they had to shut down the town. The government took over and it was abandoned. Now, some people say that it's just the animals that are mutated, Mm. including a large peninsular python. Has it mutated? It's extra big. Oh, okay. It's like anaconda. Okay, so it like doesn't want none of you ain't got buns on. Yeah, I'm talking about the J-Lo movie. Cool. How many really obscure references can we fit in the first five minutes of the show? But, you know, some people say it even affected the people that live there and the oh, children mutated. This is all a big government cover-up. And I'm guessing they didn't get superpowers. I'm guessing it's more like... Maybe they did. Okay, well... Maybe they did. Maybe it's Then like, why do they stay in the boarded-up houses? They didn't stay there. Well, some may have. Okay, well... Some may have. I'm having trouble following the logic of the story. logic. None. Go with it. I'm trying. (laughs) I expect too much. But the town does look like they just kind of were either gathered up or got up and left immediately. Because there are abandoned cars. There are things left in the houses. There's an abandoned bus. Okay. Now, the bus... Is one of my favorite of the urban legends because it has several versions of stories surrounding it, such mm-hmm. as there was a serial killer that killed all of the kids on a bus one day. Technically, that's a spree killer. Yeah. Not to parse too. Thank you. Serious, Thank you. you. Sometimes you can go and see that it's covered in blood, but oh. most of the time you don't see that because all the seats have been removed that were covered in blood. To protect the prying eyes of the public. I guess. Uh, Or you can see the spirits still sitting in their ghostly seats. But not their real seats because they've all been removed because of the blood. Okay, now this makes more sense. You can see the serial, nay, spree killer, (laughs) ghost, spirit. Why is he dead? Well, I don't know. Mutated, I don't know. And he is sometimes leaning against the bus smoking a cigarette. No, I'm I'm pretty sure that's just the cigarette man from X-Files, but whatever. Now, if you go down this dilapidated, you know, broken down road, you will come to a road closed sign. Now, if you were to choose to go past the sign, you may come in contact with some of the residents. One of them has a hearse with one headlight that will drive you out of town. Is not it? physically. Wait, this is in Ohio. That's where the, the one headlight headless motorcyclist was. That's true. So maybe he's just traveling. Maybe he's just legend tripping himself. Could be. Maybe he just wants his own Jersey Devil to be friends with. Maybe he wants a place of his own. (laughs) Out in the country. Somewhere that's green. To settle. There's a cemetery. And this cemetery is full of children's graves. Specifically? From the bus incident. Oh, really? That's what they say. That's what my friend told me. I hate when they say things. I was in detention the other day, and my friend told me this story. He sounds really cool. I bet you'll be friends forever. Like a jock and a nerd and a a prom queen, a freak. You know, you should start a club, like a breakfast club. Oh, and so, since all of the people were driven out of this town, who would let a perfectly good town go to waste? So also, Satanists live there. Well, they have to live somewhere. I guess so. Hell Town's as good a place as any, I I mean, there's not a daycare around. (laughs) Well, there are all those children's graves. Maybe they can necromancy the children. I don't know. Maybe that's what happened to the bus. (laughs) So now, 
one stalwart television station did do a documentary about it. Uh Uh-huh. It was a two-hour special on the history of Helltown for Destination America's Ghost-Tober lineup. Oh, Ghost-Tober. So, the trailer says... Do it. No, do the voice. In 1974, the U.S. government evacuated an entire town of Boston, Ohio. This is the story of a real American town. People have reported seeing some monster lurking in its rooms. And the government cover-up. Boston, Ohio was stripped of its name. Now, it has a new one. Helltown. Exactly. Now, in this documentary, they do uh, interview Paul Wyndham, who's a professor of folklore and mythology at Cuyahoga Community College. And he tells kind of the story of how all these terrible things have happened. They also interview some of the residents, such as Connor Dwyer. And he's even shown as a young man in a television special that ran back in the 1980s. And he's sitting with his grandfather on their front porch. And the grandfather mentions they doesn't want to move his family out of the area. Because Connor is deaf and then have trouble in a new location. So they knew it was coming, this chemical spill, slash serial killer, slash Satanist occupation. Evacuation, (laughs) government evacuation. Uh, But, you know, of course, while it was presented as a documentary, it was like a a mockumentary or like a Blair Witch style kind of movie. Okay. Was Connor real? We'll get there. Okay. So I feel like I've been being the skeptic a lot recently, um, but I'm sorry. There was this rule I had when I would edit comics, and it was like, you can't have too many magics. Like, you can't have a superhero that has all the powers. It's boring. It only worked for Superman because he was the first one. You can't do that. This has all the magic. This has all the magics. I would send this script back and tell them they needed a rewrite. Like, it's too much. It's unbelievable. You've gone too far. On what are you basing this? None of the pieces fit together. Serial killers, Satanists, chemical spills. No. Ghost. No. Pick a magic. So, without a doubt, the town of Boston Mills, Ohio, what is now known as Helltown, is a real place. There are real U.S. no trespassing signs on the buildings. Fully believe that. They are abandoned and burned out. There is an abandoned, emptied school bus. There is a cemetery. There is a church with upside-down crosses. Okay, there are teenagers with paint. But the rest of those things, other than the upside-down crosses... Well, the upside-down crosses are just like a feature of the architecture. It's just built in. But I will say that if there were a town, things like school buses and cemeteries would be a feature of such a town. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So the town of Boston Mills is obviously abandoned. But the interesting thing about it is is why. It's not just some ghost town that was abandoned when the local mine you know, dried up. It has a much more interesting story that makes the name Helltown applicable. So beginning in the late 1960s, there was a nationwide movement began that expressed concern over our forests being destroyed in the name of progress. So in 1974, in an effort to save the forest... President Gerald Ford signed legislation that enabled the National Park Service to purchase land to be used to create national parks. And it worked out about as well as it did when Gerald Ford signed a pardon for Richard Nixon. Yeah, well. So shortly after that, on December 27, 1974, 
Hundreds of acres, including land within the township of Boston Mills, were officially designated as a national recreation area. So this would later become the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. So this is just beautiful land that needs to be preserved. It's not contaminated with a massive chemical spill. This is not the government coming in to clean up one of its mistakes. So it's just the government just manifesting its destiny all over again. Oh, yeah. At the time, they did not know this, but this probably did contribute to the legend. In 1985, they did discover toxic drums leaking in the nearby Kreshke dump that had made at least one hiker sick. And a superhero. Mm-hmm, unfortunately not. So all of this was bought up in this initial land grab, but they didn't find out about these toxic drums until 1985, almost 10 years later. So it's not the reason the land was purchased. No. Just a happy little coincidence. I wouldn't call it happy. I meant for the purposes of our narrative, Jacob. So it was closed to the public in 1986 after toxic chemicals were found at 14 separate locations on 19 acres. They found thousands of leaking drums on the property. They contained waste from industrial processes, including paint, ink, herbicide, pesticide, solvents, and industrial sludge. That's a real thing, sludge? Sure. I think it's a good catch-all. Okay. So back to the creation of our national park. So the town, located in the Cuyahoga Valley National Park, Boston Mills, reflects the early 19th century canal era and the early 20th century industrial era. So it had kind of risen up whenever you had the Ohio and the Erie Canal being created, and they built the canal boats. Now that had long shut down. It had just become a small little rural town with some farms and you know a few little shops and things like that. But it was just kind of like a nice place to live out in the country. One resident said, "One of my reasons for wanting to move out here and raise a family here, there were all kinds of people, people with integrity and individuality. No one was trying to rip anybody off. They were just trying to live here and take care of the environment and be private people." Now, between 1979 and 1982, thousands of people had their homes taken. Taken? Like they would just, somebody would just come knock and be like, you don't live here anymore. Go away. In a way. Oh. They were all bought up. Okay. By well, the National Park Service. So this was all- That's better than taken. Well, let's see. Okay. <laughs> so this was all followed by a documentary crew, and it was featured on Frontline July of 1983. And a piece called For the Good of All. Now, the host says this is a classic political story. A story about good intentions, bureaucracy, and a struggle against individual homeowners and those acting for the good of all. That is a classic political story. By the way, clips from this were used in that Helltown movie. Bullshit. (laughs) At least they kind of mocked him up. At first, the local people liked the idea of living within a national park. This would be great. They'd always been kind of conservation-minded. But then they found out they weren't invited. Basically, they were assured only a handful of houses would need to be purchased, but that was not the case. They had already had 30,000 acres of land bought up, and they started buying up homes and land around the town. One resident said, they want to take my house and turn it into a visitor center because they think it's so nice. Another one said, I asked the lawyer, supposedly we'd ignore them some of bitches. He said, well, they'll send armed men in to take it from you. Well... That didn't worry me a great deal, except for Grandma. And I would tear her to pieces if I, if it went that way, so I decided to do the best I could and get out. 
Do you have the idea in your mind that Grandma left there tied to the top of a pickup truck in a rocking chair like the Beverly Hillbillies? Because that's what I'm imagining. (laughs) We can only hope. So quickly, they started acquiring a lot more land than it initially promised and a lot more than had been granted by the congressional initial bill. So there were two different options for purchase of the homes where you were like, oh, well, it's better than just being kicked out. Right. You get something, some compensation. And that's how it should have gone. Oh, God. So two versions. The first was fee title purchase, which was only supposed to be used in special circumstances. And that's whenever you would just buy the house up, you know, just like you get out of here. We got to buy this house. Okay. And it was supposed to be like 25 to 30 homes. And they later admitted that 300 homes had been taken. That is more than 30. (laughs) 10 times more. Hey, look at our math. Now, the other version was scenic easement. And that was what should have been done with the majority of the houses. Where they could stay and become part of the park as long as they agree not to make any big changes to their house. Now, who got what was very inconsistent. Such as the local newspaper editor got an easement. Along with the congressman that lived there who said, when you do something this big, some people aren't going to like it. No shit. But, like, in some cases, such as an A-frame little house that was 50 feet inside the park, it was bought up. Fee title purchase. And they had to get their shit and go. They had to get their shit out. Many small farms were bought, and they never had any sort of acquisition plan actually released to the public. That doesn't seem like it's supposed to work that way. It's not supposed to. They had armed rangers that were out on patrol to keep purchased homes safe. Oh my god. And since they had these abandoned homes, some houses were burned by the local fire department as training exercises. And there's that part of the legend. And so they didn't make it easy for the people that kind of forced their way to stay there. There's one family who retained rights to live there was approached by a park ranger one day. Because their dog had attacked a woodchuck. Shut up. Woodchucks need to be attacked. I don't even know what they are. Like little squirrels. They're not. (laughs) So they charged the lady with harassing nature. Shut up. That's not a thing. And she had to pay a fine. What does nature harassment look like? Attacking a woodchuck. No, it looks like (laughs) catcalling a pine tree or something. I don't know. Nice cones. (laughs) Oh, no. You stop it. Don't get jealous. (laughs) I'll never be a conifer. So the Reagan administration came into power and they put a moratorium on any further land acquisition because they didn't want any more spending. Handy. And so the town's residents who've been fighting this extremely hard said it's not dead yet. It still can be saved. They were trying to get the government to allow people to buy their homes back and move back in. So is that why so much of it looks like untouched? Like when people just like left their stuff there, they're like, maybe we can buy it back. So nowadays... Like, within the last few years, they've torn a lot of the homes down. Mm-hmm. But it took them a very long time to get there. But even though they had some meetings with the Department of Interior and with the Deputy Secretary, uh, nothing really ever came into fruition. And for- few could afford to continue the fight. So by that time, by the time they were trying to get that administration to let them move back, and it really wasn't going well, 425 of the 500 homes had been bought by the government. Like I said, they sat vacant for years. They were fire practice. They eventually were demolished. Some of the homes were turned into visitor centers. How lovely. (laughs) Such as 
1836 Boston Company store, with its federal and Greek revival influence, now serves as the Cuyahoga Valley National Park Visitor Center and Canal Boat Building Museum. I would so go there and not know to feel bad. Exactly. You wouldn't know that was... I would go to the boat museum. And someone was basically forced out of that property. Uh. And in the documentary, they show that these residents do not want to leave. They don't mind the park. They like the park. They don't, they don't mind the park. They want the, how the plan was supposed to go with the scenic easement to where they could kind of just live there and, you know, not make any big changes and just kind of keep up the property. May I mean girl explain this? Wow. So, the, so <laughs> this is like in college when your roommate's like, hey, I was thinking, wouldn't it be great to have a party next Friday? And you're like, yeah, that sounds awesome. And you're like going along with the plans. And she's like, hey, can you stop and get your friend with that's 21 to like go and buy booze for the party? And you're like, yeah, sure. And then your friend goes and you get the booze. And she's like, hey, I have a final tomorrow. Do you think like maybe you could like go pick up some plates and stuff? And you're like, yeah, sure. And then she's like, oh, I'm really sorry. But like there are just going to be too many people and you're not invited to the party. That was a really weird explanation. (laughs) It's right on, though. It's like that level of like, yay, that sounds great. What do you mean I'm not invited? I have put up with your shit. I have, yeah, no, that is exactly what this is. I promise you. (laughs) But forever. So I mentioned that PBS documentary and I found it eventually. And so I'll post it on the website. And you can see just, you know, how heartbroken some of these residents are that have lived there their whole lives and their communities being torn apart to build a national park when it really didn't need to be because there was already a large area. And they show, you can see what the area looks like, some of the areas look like now, like that were farmland. They're just picnic areas. (laughs) And so one past resident said, there's no word to express it. The feeling that it leaves you with. I'm glad our ancestors aren't here to see this happen. I don't think any of them could have taken it. So people were literally put through hell the community was gutted any solution once they actually could speak to anyone would have come too late now a statement found scrawled across the wall of a vacated home i think is very kind of apropos this <laughs> is now we know how the indians felt it makes you want to scream this is like is this just what america is is this just is this just what we do is it because it seems so cyclical right it does so let's talk about one of the original incarnations of this cycle. And so we've already talked about what many of you may be thinking, like the Trail of Tears. Of course, people's lands were completely gutted and taken away. And you could definitely go listen to that episode and, and probably cry. <laughs> it's uh, the Ancient Indian Burial Grounds episode. the one where we really dive into that. But now I want to talk about sort of phase two of that kind of removal, if you will. This is sourced from one of the best nonfiction books I've read, at least this year, maybe ever. Sweep the awards when they come out next year. Yeah. But it is so well researched that like I did additional research and didn't use anything. Like he is amazing. This guy's name is David Grant. He uses a ton of primary sources. He interviews people. He's thorough and he really puts a great narrative together the book is called killers of the flower moon our story begins in 1921 in osage county oklahoma a woman named anna brown 
who is a member of the Osage tribe, has gone missing. Anna was recently divorced and had no children. But her disappearance followed that of another local man named Charles Whitehorn. So was she Osage too? He was. Yeah. And so this raised some questions. It seemed odd that two members of the tribe would go missing so close together and they had nothing materially to do with one another. The Osage tribe lived on their reservation in Oklahoma and oil deposits had been discovered under their reservation. So they had rights to it. Yes. Through very careful negotiations, they had been allowed to retain their mineral rights within the tribe. Wow. So in 1923 alone, the tribe took more than $30 million, which would be equivalent to $400 million today. And they were considered the wealthiest people per capita in the world. Amazing. It was all going very well. Talk about some payback for the Trail of Tears. We'll see. The wealth was noted and widely remarked upon. The New York Weekly Outlook said, Lo and behold, the Indian, instead of starving to death, enjoys a steady income that turns bankers green with envy. And reporters would, of course, remark upon the contrast between, like, their seemingly savage ways and posh accoutrements. One article noted a circle of expensive automobiles surrounding an open campfire where the bronzed and brightly blanketed owners are cooking meat in the primitive style. Oh my god. That savage with his packard. The Washington Star said, That lament, lo the poor Indian, might appropriately be revised to, ho the rich redskin. So the press is noting it. They're snarky about it. Everyone kind of knows of the Osage and their legendary wealth. Now, Anna was a member of a large Osage family. Her parents had both been born before the tribe had moved from their Kansas reservation to the Oklahoma reservation. Her sister Minnie was dead, but Rita, another sister, and her husband Bill, they are the Smiths, we will continue to talk about them, and her mother still lived on the Osage territory. And so did her other sister, Molly, and her husband, Ernest. They are the Burkharts. Ernest... Her brother-in-law had a brother himself named Brian. And Brian was the man who was last seen with Anna before she went missing. Oh, that's sketch. And Molly and Ernest's home was the last place that Anna had been seen before she disappeared. Grand describes Ernest this way. Ernest had a tendency to drink moonshine and play Indian stud poker with men of ill repute. But beneath his roughness, there seemed to be a tenderness and a trace of insecurity. And Molly fell in love with him. Born a speaker of Osage, Molly had learned some English in school. Nevertheless, Ernest studied her native language until he could talk with her in it. She suffered from diabetes, and he cared for her when her joints ached and her stomach burned with hunger. After he'd heard that another man had affections for her, he muttered that he couldn't live without her. So, local authorities had been alerted to Anna's disappearance. But this was not exactly like filing a formal report in a police office and then someone takes your name and number and they'll get back to you. This is kind of still posse territory. It's still the Wild West. It is pretty much the Wild West, yes. Before it was a state. So it had only been a state for like like 15 years. Okay. It was a fairly recent addition to America. Grand notes. Towns like Whizbang, where it was said that people whizzed all day and banged all night, were in the territory, and all the forces of dissipation and evil are here found, a U.S. government official reported. Gambling, drinking, adultery, lying, thieving, murdering. 
Nice list, bro. Anna had become entranced by the places at the dark ends of the street, the establishments that seemed proper on the exterior, but contained hidden rooms filled with glittering bottles of moonshine. One of Anna's servants later told authorities that Anna was someone who drank a lot of whiskey and had very loose morals with white men. Any of that true? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I think it's a fair question. No, it is. But yes. So... So Charles Whitehorn had gone missing about a week before she did. But about three weeks after he'd gone missing, his body was found. And it was learned that he'd been shot in the head right between the eyes and left in a vehicle. Anna's body was found around the same time. And she'd been shot between their eyes and left near a creek. Hmm, M.O. Mm-hmm. So when the body was discovered by a dad and his son who were out, like, hunting, the kid saw it, which just bothers me. She was not readily identifiable so the the entire family went out to identify the body except the mother and they had to identify her using some gold fillings that she had in her teeth and they recognized the indian blanket and the clothes that molly had washed for her and it was actually bill who opened her mouth to look at her teeth had a positive identification at that time i don't know if that counts as dental records well i mean brother-in-law to look in your mouth as much as anything at this time it's dentistry i guess but your brother-in-law it's still when (laughs) barbers were pulling teeth so anna's funeral took place shortly after her body was discovered and there was a mixture of catholic and osage traditions that are really prevalent in the area because a lot of these kids went to catholic boarding schools against their will but really, don't all children go to Catholic boarding school against their will? I think it was a little different. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It was. Mm, it was definitely different. different. See the Audio Dime Museum episode. So Joseph Matthews, who is part of who is part Osage, spent a lot of time documenting the tribe's traditions. And when he talked about the funeral prayer, he said, It filled my little boy's soul with fear and bittersweetness, an exotic yearning. And when it had ended, and I lay there in my exultant fear trance, I hoped fervently that there would be more of it, and yet I was afraid there might be. It seemed to me later, after I had begun to reason, that this prayer song, this chant, this soul-stirring petition, always ended before it was finished in a sob of frustration. And by the way, I want to go read everything this man ever wrote down on paper. Now, there were some issues with the funeral because Anna's casket couldn't be left open, and... She couldn't have her face painted. And this was done to show which clan a person was a member of so that they could find their relatives in the afterlife. So, so this was additional emotional trauma that the family was going through. So they weren't able to kind of do their traditional funeral practices. And the Osage do refer to the afterlife as the happy hunting ground. And they placed enough food in the casket for Anna's three-day journey to get there. They did the best they could with what they had, but I think that it was very hard, especially on her mother, to not be able to bury her with traditional rites. Understandably. Now, Ernest attended the funeral with Molly, and a lawyer who knew them both noted that he had a devotion to his Indian wife and children that was unusual and striking. So this is really suspicious circumstances. You've got two people shot in the head in a tiny little town. I mean, this was... The United States, but it was still the Wild West. Were they like calling the posse in? Were they calling the sheriff in? Did they call federal agents in? What's going on? Yes to all of it eventually. Okay. (laughs) So 
So America was very skeptical of a police force in the beginning. You have to remember that we come from like this OG fuck the police morass. Of course. You see it in the Bill of Rights. Right. We are not police people, we think, for years. We still think. We still think. Okay. There was this, we don't like authority. We don't like people telling us what to do. Ergo American Revolution. And people held on to that sentiment. People were very resistant to the idea of formally establishing any police force. They did not like that. So citizens would just get together and round up, literally, posses. I know it sounds like a funny word, but it's true. Only in the mid-19th century, after the growth of industrial cities and a rash of urban riots, after the dread of the so-called dangerous classes surpassed the dread of the state, did police departments emerge in the United States. And by the time of Anna's death, the informal system of citizen policing had been displaced, but vestiges remained, especially in places that still seemed to exist on the periphery of geography and history. Now, there were lawmen, bounty hunters, etc., that were very much supposed to just go kill the suspect at I this mean, time. It's like exactly what you would think of in yes. like a Western. I am the law. Right. They would track people down and they were supposed to bring them back dead or alive. Emphasis on death. So with this background, this informal, formal, we're still figuring it out justice system that's happening right now. The investigation was shoddy. There were some footprints around Anna's body, but no cast were taken of course not and no fingerprints were dusted for they have fingerprints yes they did (laughs) no no that was one of the things that the feds were working on was getting the database together very important you understand very organized but there were these two doctors in town these doctor brothers the shown brothers James and David and they did conduct a formal autopsy on Anna's body and they were pretty proficient for the time. They knew things like about lividity and way that rigor had set in and like what that indicated about the body being moved or not being moved. Like they made good notes. I was very impressed with their report. But they failed to find a bullet. They couldn't find it or they just didn't take it? No, they reported that they could not find it. Okay. So, so eventually, another insult. Anna's body was exhumed so that they could try again to find the bullet. I'm sure the family resisted that. No, they really wanted whoever it was caught. Yeah, they wanted to find it more than anything. Yes. And so the brothers got out meat cleavers, cut her skull open, and tried again, and said again they still could not find a bullet. But there was no exit wound. Molly then testified at the inquest about her sister's death. So there was a formal inquest held. So kudos law enforcement. And she says that she did last see Anna with Brian Burkhart. Now, Brian was eventually detained by authorities after the first hearing. And they even put his brother, Ernest, Molly's husband in lockup with him. But then they were turned loose for lack of evidence. And then Ernest was asked if he had any information about how Anna met her death. And he said, no. And said, I don't know if, enemies she had or anyone who disliked her why they let them go they had a very or brian especially had a very strong alibi he said that he'd been to see a play in another town with his aunt and uncle and the aunt and uncle backed up a story okay okay and the play actually had been in town now anna had an ex-husband as i mentioned she was recently divorced and his name was oda brown but he had been very visibly shaken by her death and he had these big public displays of grief And some people thought that maybe they were too big and too public. Mm. And they're like, is he compensating for something? And so that became very suspicious. 
Now, he was not pleased with Anna before she died because through the course of their divorce, she formally disinherited him. Oh, so all the oil money. Right. Ooh, starting to get sketchy. So she left all her money to her mother. Brown actually hired a lawyer even after her death to petition for him to get some of her inheritance. An investigator concluded that he was absolutely no good and capable of doing almost anything or money. But all this was circumstantial, and they couldn't really get a case together for Oda. So Molly then went to a man named William King Hale, who was Ernest's uncle, for help. And in order to help keep these names straight, he's the king of Osage County, and that's probably the easiest way to think of him. He was a prominent white citizen in the Oklahoma Territory, but no one knew where he came from. Ah, mysterious king. Mm-hmm. So by king, like he was like a really wealthy guy. Really influential. Yes. Now, what did he think of those those engines? Well, he was their their sovereign, their white father, like Thomas Jefferson. Okay. Um, okay. So he didn't have any problem with the Osage people. No. Good, okay. I'm I'm pleasantly surprised. (laughs) So, arriving in the territory with little more than the clothes on his back and a worn Old Testament, he embarked on what a person who knew him called a fight for life and fortune in the raw state of civilization. So he went west, young man. He did, or maybe east, no one knew. But the earliest way that people in the territory knew him, like his first incarnation of King Hale, was... A cowboy. Like, he was a real, honest-to-God cowboy. But eventually, he saved up enough money and borrowed the rest and bought his own herd in the Osage Territory. A local resident said of Hale, He's the most energetic man I ever knew. A man who invested in his business, recalled. Even when he crossed the street, he walked as if he was going after something. But he was also known as Osage County's greatest benefactor. He aided the Osage before they were flush when they needed it so before they had the oil before they right. had black gold absolutely texas tea are we really doing another hillbillies reference yeah okay it's called a callback you're right that means they're smart so he donated to a lot of local charities and schools and a hospital and he also decided he was a preacher and signed his letters reverend wk hale a local doctor said i couldn't begin to remember how many sick people received medicinal attention at his expense and how many hungry mouths have tasted his bounty. Later, Hale wrote a letter to an assistant chief of the tribe saying, I never had better friends in my life than the Osages. I will always be the Osages' true friend. And so he was a very busy man. He was always moving and shaking, and he kept like a million irons in the fire. And he'd wake up at 4 a.m. and go work on his ranch, and then he would just be very civically and capitalistly (laughs) minded the rest of the time. Grand wrote, he worked with the fervor of someone who feared not only hunger, but an Old Testament God who at any moment might punish him like Job. So he does seem like a logical person for Molly, the sister, to go ask for help. He says he's he's always going to be the truest of true bestie friends with the Osage people. Mm -hmm. And he has massive political sway, lots of money, lots of influence. He's white, which doesn't hurt. It always helps. I was going to say back then, but really no. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe it just have more. But. And he would also remark and say things like he and Anna had been mighty good friends. Like he said that a lot to a lot of people. And he was also a reserve sheriff's deputy. 
and he thought of himself as a lawman. He thought of himself as an everything man. He did. He said he was a powerful local advocate for law and order for the protection of God-fearing souls. So what did he do? He hired some investigators? He did. Yeah? Called the Pinkertons in? Yes, he did. <laughs> yes. Pinkerton Agency. Oh, that's an episode I cannot wait for. It's going to be good, folks. So the newly recruited investigators began to look into various known criminal elements in the area. The riffraff. And there was a lot of riffraff. Riffraff. It was a no man's land for a while. And there were still parts of the territory that were largely unexplored and uninhabited. Where people could go hide out in caves, etc., etc. And if you read about this period in crime history, a lot of like bank robbers and just, just that kind of criminal... John Dillinger, but not him, Bonnie and Clyde-esque people were going to hide out in the hills in the Osage Territory. And one of them was named Al Spencer. He was called the Phantom Terror. Ooh. And he had started out his criminal career on horseback with Jesse James. Nice. But he made the transition. I was thinking, I think Jesse James went and hid in the hills of Oklahoma. Everyone did. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, Spencer, being a sharp guy had recognized that technology was improving and he could now use cars to rob things. Smart guy. So he had become infamous all over again. And the Arizona Republican reported that Spencer, with his, quote, diseased mind and misguided love of adventure, appealed to the portion of the population of the country that fed on false idolatry. Ah, so he was just like the romantic outlaw hero that Americans... Love to love and hate. <laughs> yes, very Bonnie and Clyde, this fellow. So as they're going down all these paths, pursuing all these known criminals in the area, bootleggers, moonshiners, what have you. In July of 1921, Lizzie, the mother of all the daughters, Molly and Rita, as well as Anna, died. Her health had declined very rapidly after Anna's death. But Bill Smith, her son-in-law, Rita's husband, suspected foul play. <gasps> oh, no. I mean, it is suspicious. It's like right after Anna dies and the other guy dies. Right. So Bill, who is described as a bruising bulldog of a man, decided he was going to look into this himself because he'd reported it and no one seemed to care. And he was really bothered because there was this vagueness around the mom's illness. It just came on and no one could say exactly what it was. And there had not actually been an official natural cause of death death and this just did not sit right with him so why was bill suspicious what would anyone want to kill a sweet old lady for money money that is the answer oil money so let's take a minute and explain some of the literal lay of the land (laughs) let's get our heads around how the money stuff works so let's start with some osage history let's talk about how they got from where they were to where they are So an Osage chief was asked why he didn't adopt the white man's ways, and he replied, I am perfectly content with my condition. The forest and the rivers supply all the calls of nature in plenty. And they did. They had a very broad swath of the country that was their territory. Where was that? Like You said Kansas? Kind of the Midwest. It it stretched over a lot of the country. It was basically like when the Louisiana Purchase was acquired, it needed to be addressed because they had so much land in that area. Now, Jefferson was very fond, speaking of the Louisiana. Thomas Jefferson? Yes, that one. Who purchased Louisiana from France? 
from Napoleon, no less. Napoleon. That's the one, yes. That Jefferson. He was very fond of the Osage people, actually. He was their white father. Eh, Yeah. And what's even worse is that term keeps being used for people in Washington, and I find it heartbreaking. And the term white father keeps getting used for Jefferson, too. Oh, snap. That is a Sally Hemings burn. But anyway, let's look at the nicer side of Jefferson for a moment, if we may. It's nice books. His library, (laughs) y'all. Was burned down. Another day. Another day. So he calls all the chiefs in from the Osage Nation and addresses them. He says, my children... It is so long since our forefathers came from beyond the great water that we've lost our memory of it, and we seem to have grown out of this land as you have done. We are all now one family. On your return, tell your people that I take them all by hand, that I will become their father hereafter, and they shall know our nation only as friends and benefactors. Over promise. (laughs) Under deliver. He continued to say that they were the finest men he had ever seen and that they should really try their best to be fair to the Osage people. Like, he continued to say it even when they weren't in the room, which is remarkable. Okay. (laughs) He described them as a heroic race that once held undisputed ownership over all of this region. But despite Jefferson's seemingly warm attitude toward the Osage people, they were moved off their land, which spanned much of the Midwest, to a reservation in Kansas. A chief said of his decision to sign a treaty with the U.S. government that they had no choice. They must either sign the treaty or be declared enemies of the United States. So over the next two decades, the Osage were forced to cede nearly 100 million acres of their ancestral land. And they had eventually kind of moved on to, bit by bit, this like 50 by 125 mile area in southeastern Kansas. But then Manifest Destiny happened. Keeps happening. And white settlers would just settle their land. They were just doing it. And there's actually a passage in Little House on the Prairie by Laura Ingalls Wilder about like going through the territory and the mom saying that, the Indians would all be gone soon and her being like, why? And she's like, cause white people are going to live here. Laura. Damn it. <laughs> don't lick your fingers. <laughs> like that's the quote. I don't know. Why. Such a sweet book. Yeah. She doesn't necessarily agree with it. <laughs> but in 1870, the Osage were expelled from their lodges. Their graves were plundered and they finally agreed to sell their Kansas lands to settlers for a dollar 25 an acre. Nevertheless, the settlers didn't want to pay them and like didn't want to have to do any real estate dealings because that can be confusing. And so they just started killing people. They just started killing Osage people and mutilating their bodies, scalping them, ironically, I guess. An Indian Affairs agent said, the question will suggest itself, which of these people are the savages? And so after this happened, one of the chiefs decided it was time to move because this was not going to stop happening. And so he set out to find land to purchase that no one else would want. And he didn't want like a reservation. He wanted to own the land. Right, because this whole reservation bit hadn't worked out so well. Would you go for it? I think it's a great idea. Well, the purchasing. Yeah. Yes. And so they found this place in Oklahoma, which became Osage County or the Osage Territory. And he says, my people will be happy in this land. The white man cannot put an iron thing in the ground here. The white man will not come to this land. There are many hills here. 
and the white man does not like country where there are hills, and he will not come. If my people go west, where the land is like the floor of a lodge, the white man will come to our lodges and say, we want your land. And soon, land will end, and the Osages will have no home. So he's taking this undesirable section of land that's very rocky and hilly in Oklahoma. Now, the journey to Oklahoma was taxing for the Osage tribe, and it was estimated that it dropped as low as 3,000 people by the time they were settled in this territory. And that was a third of what it had been previously, about 70 years earlier. So, I mean, but they're moving to this barren land. It must have been hard to survive there. It was, but they were supposed to be receiving government subsidies. Well, we all know how well that went. Yeah. So it was very hard on them. People were actually starving. But then a funny thing happened on a piece of the Cherokee territory next door. What's that? Well, the government decided they would like to have that, please. It was that Cherokee reservation? Yeah. Yes. Government cannot be trusted with a reservation. <laughs> so they wanted to give it to settlers. Yeah. To get some more white people in the territory <laughs> before it became a state. Like they did here. Yeah. Yeah, well. (laughs) Because French people aren't white. Who knew? Apparently, I feel white. (laughs) I don't. (laughs) I feel, I know, but I feel the privilege. It's like seeping off of me. It's like, it's like sticky. (laughs) I think that's the humidity. So they did purchase the land. The U.S. government purchased a section of land from the Cherokee. They announced that at noon on September 16th of 1893, a settler would be able to lay claim to one of the 42,000 parcels of land. It was a race? It was a race! So whoever got there sooner? Sooner. Would get it? Yes. Like, like the Oklahoma Sooners? Those are the ones. So this is from, from whence that mascot comes. So the football team is named after this? Yes. I always wondered. I wondered, but I didn't care enough to Google it. It was one of those things. I knew it was something to do with the settlers. Something about it. Right. It's like when you found out the Tennessee Volunteers were named after Andrew Jackson's Volunteers. And you went, oh. (laughs) LSU Tigers were named after a Civil War Brigade that wore fancy outfits. They were super fancy. It's true. To be fair. (laughs) The Sooners... We need to go a step further with this as we're contemplating the fact that this is a college mascot. We're actually the people who cheated. <laughs> what did they do? They went across the line. They went like hit. Sooner uh, than they were supposed to. And uh, they got shot. Oh, uh, they deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> they were offsides. Exactly. <laughs> Ten yard penalty. Get your ass back there. So there was a starting gun, which I imagine was very confusing with people actually being shot. <laughs> The starting gun was actually them shooting all the people that already crossed the line. <laughs> a reporter wrote, A race for land such as was never before witnessed on earth. Men knocked each other down as they rushed onward. Women shrieked and fell, fainting only to be trampled and perhaps killed. Men, women, and horses were laying all over the prairie. <laughs> Here and there, men were fighting to the death over claims which each maintained he was first to reach. Knives and guns were drawn. It was a terrible and exciting scene. No pen can do it justice. It was a struggle where the game was emphatically every man for himself and devil take the hindmost. By nightfall, the Cherokee outlet had been carved into pieces. 
So first sounds like a post-apocalyptic game. <laughs> it does sound like Hunger Games. Or something. Where they're going to get the stuff, their weapons or whatever. Yes. But so this is what the Osage were worried about happening to territory they may be given. Right. They sent an advocate to D.C. to negotiate this deal for them. And they did not want to see this happen on their land. So what they did is they carved the land into larger pieces than had been done with a Cherokee outlet. But the government was trying to discourage communal living. They did not like that. They wanted them to assimilate, see the boarding school's story. See everything. So they wanted them on individual pieces of land, and they wanted white people to eventually be able to buy it. And so what happened was the pieces of land were larger, and every member of the tribe got one, no matter their age. And each of those pieces of land, or parcels of land, came with what was called a head right. Okay, what's a head right? It was your entitlement to the mineral rights under your land. Now, the land could be sold, but the head rights could not. They had to stay within the tribe. It was a very good deal. I can't believe they were able to negotiate that. I guess they didn't really know about oil yet. No. I guess it's like we know there's no gold. You know, there are no other minerals in Oklahoma. There had been rumors that there might be oil. Yeah, but they didn't give a shit about oil yet. Well, they were beginning to. And people kind of thought it might be a big thing. Like, there was one guy that, like, saw, like, a glossy cover on a creek one day and, like, brought someone to see it. And they're like, we're going to see about mineral rights for y'all. Basically. That's good. Yeah. And so every person got a head right. Head rights could not be sold. Land could be sold. Head rights could only be inherited. But the trust, the mineral trust, was to remain under tribal control. So this really sets us up to why there is such suspicion for foul play. There is so much money involved. There are the head rights involved related to the mineral rights of this huge reserve of oil under the rocky no man's land of Oklahoma. Right. So Bill was right to be suspicious that three members of this family had died. There was many First of all, who he'd previously been married to before he married Rita, the other sister. Now Anna was dead, and now the mom was dead. So Bill, is he Osage? Is he white? He's a white guy. He's a white guy, and he's married into the family. Yes. Twice now. Well, that was, that was a common yes. thing. He had been a horse thief, and when law enforcement found this out, they began to be suspicious of him. And he was nosing around in this investigation. And there were also rumors that he'd gotten kind of rough with Rita a couple of times. Bastard. But Molly just couldn't get her head around the idea that Bill would have anything to do with any of this and decided she would just keep on trusting him. Even though law enforcement officers believed that Bill might be, quote, prostituting the sacred bond of marriage for sordid gain. Molly didn't buy it and said the family offered a $2,000 reward. Whitehorn's family, the other man who died, chipped in a $2,500 reward. And Hale offered to add to that reward as well. King King Hale. Hale Hale then hired a detective named Pike, who was a pretty famous dude at the time. But nothing like the man who was hired by Scott Mathis, who had been in charge of the financial affairs for Anna. He hired the William J. Burns Detective Agency. So the New York Times called Burns perhaps the only really great detective, the only detective of genius whom this country has produced. And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle 
gave him the moniker he longed for, America's Sherlock Holmes. Burns succeeded Pinkerton, who founded the Pinkerton Agency, right. as the world's most celebrated private eye. People were very fascinated by the idea of private eyes at this time. One author said that Sherlock and the like turned brutal crimes, the vestiges of the beast in man, into intellectual puzzles, which is such an interesting thought. But they were often seen as kind of surreptitious, negative, prying outsiders. And it's interesting to note that the term to detect derived from the Latin verb to unroof, because according to legend, the devil would allow his henchmen to look into houses by removing the roofs. And that's why detectives were commonly known as the devil's disciples. That's super creepy. (laughs) So who did they start to point the finger at? A lady. Of course. There was a lady named Rose Osage, and there was much local gossip that she had actually been responsible for Anna's murder. Why? We'll get back to it. (laughs) Fine. But more local gossip. Ooh, what is it? And this local gossip had a tale that Anna had been pregnant at the time of her death. Well, that puts a kink into it. Yes, it does. This was later confirmed by investigators. So she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. But it originally came from the cab driver who'd brought her to Molly's house on the day that she disappeared. And she asked if he would bring her to the cemetery. And she climbs out. She's drunk. She's drunk on the day she disappears. Climbs out, goes to the cemetery, goes to her father's grave, and then she gets back in the car and asks him if he wanted to know a secret. And she says that she's going to have a little baby. My goodness, no, he replied. I am, she said. Is that so? Yes. But no one knew who the father was. Huh. And no one will ever know. Ha. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, as they're investigating these sordid stories about... This woman who supposedly shot Anna and they're looking around for dad of the baby and thinking that maybe it was the ex-husband. Another man dies. Another Osage man. Really? He was this 29-year-old Osage man named William Stepson. And he was a champion steer roper. And someone called him on the phone late at night and he left his home. But when he returned, his wife and children noticed that he was visibly ill. Though he'd previously been just like this very fit athletic guy. Was he poisoned? That's what people suspected. And Bill thought that Anna's mom might have been poisoned. Yes. Hmm. And people actually speculated that Stepson had been killed with strychnine. So if two people shot in the head, two people maybe poisoned. Yes. And then there was another death in March of a man named Joe Bates, who was in his 30s. And he had obtained some whiskey from a stranger. And after he took a sip, he began to froth at the mouth. And collapsed. So another poisoned person. Yes. This is all very sketchy. So now with the death toll rising and the no end in sight, they decide to try and appeal to the federal government to help them out because their investigators are getting nowhere. They're investigating gossip. And so they sent a man named Barney McBride to Washington to go ask the Department of Justice, if they'll get involved in this investigation, because technically it's federal jurisdiction because it's an Indian territory. And like, right. maybe we can work something out to get some professionals on the case. So is this like a friend of theirs? Yes. His name is Barney McBride. So when McBride checked into a rooming house in the Capitol, 
He found a telegram from an associate waiting for him. Be careful, it said. McBride carried with him a Bible, a 45 caliber revolver, and that was it. Now, in the evening, he stopped at the Elks Club to play billiards. But when he headed outside, someone seized him and tied a burlap sack tightly over his head. The next morning, McBride's body was found in a culvert in Maryland. He'd been stabbed more than 20 times. His skull had been beaten in, and he'd been stripped naked except for his socks and shoes, in one of which had been left a card with his name. The forensic evidence suggested that there had been more than one assailant, and authorities suspected that his killers had shadowed him from Oklahoma. News of the murder quickly reached Molly and her family. The killing, which the WAPO called the most brutal crime in the annals of the district, appeared to be more than simply a murder. It had the hallmarks of a message, a warning. Yeah, they put the note in his shoe. And that's when the Washington Post decides to print the headline, Conspiracy Believed to Kill Rich Indians. Conspiracy. Okay, so we have all of these Osage people being murdered. I mean, because they're being murdered. They're being shot, poisoned. But, you know, we just talked about how the head rights work. And so the only way that people could get access to these mineral rights is if they inherit it. Right. So to me, it's got to be like a family member doing this? Well, one would think. But there was actually yet another demeaning process that took place. No. So this is where we need to talk about guardianship. Guardianship. The federal government did not believe that red people knew how to have money. Does anybody know how to have money? No. (laughs) The answer is no. So the Office of Indian Affairs was tasked with determining which members of the tribe were capable, competent, to manage their own money. And the tribe did not think that was a good thing, and they objected stringently. But nevertheless, many of the tribe were deemed incompetent, including Anna and her mother. And they were forced to have a white guardian overseeing and authorizing all of their spending, literally down to groceries. So were they assigned? Were they able to pick somebody? No, they were assigned. So how were they deemed incompetent? They would tell you there was a process. Oh, okay. But mostly it was by the amount of Indian blood that you had. Okay. So if you were half Osage, you were probably competent. But if you were full-blooded Osage, you were probably incompetent. Seriously? Yeah. One Osage man who served in World War I complained, I fought in France for this country, yet I'm not allowed to even sign my own checks. And I think, sir, you have a good point. And they suspected that the Osage people were like a child of about six or eight years old. Oh, that's not demeaning at all. And they justified all of this by saying that they suffered from racial weakness. Ah, God. Yeah, I know. The fact that the Osages had money was resented pretty openly. One reporter for Harper's Monthly wrote, Where will it end? Every time a new well is drilled, the Indians are that much richer. And then they added, The Osage Indians are becoming so rich that something will have to be done about it. So what you're telling me is why people got uh-huh. nervous. We should rename our show. Every, Spin off! Every history episode. We should just do a history only one and call it White People Got Nervous. <laughs> a travel magazine wrote, The Osage Indian is today the prince of the spendthrifts, 
Judged by his improvidence, the prodigal son was simply a frugal person with an inherent fondness for husk. And then a letter to the editor in The Independent referred to the typical Osage as a good-for-nothing who attained wealth merely because the government unfortunately located him upon oil land, which we white folks have developed for him. And then John Joseph Matthews recalled reporters enjoying, quote, the bizarre impact of wealth on the Neolithic men with the usual smugness and wisdom of the unlearned. And the Guardians had complete and total control over all the money. They could not withdraw money without their Guardians' consent, and this was abused. So for anything, like they had a little uh, limit? Yes. For example, in Anna and her mother's case, Exhibit Q in their incompetency trial, or their competency trial, was a bill for $319 from a butcher shop. So they bought too much meat? <laughs> they bought too much meat. Therefore, they could not handle their money. Sounds legit. <laughs> now, an investigator for the government declared, I have visited and worked in and about most of the cities of this country, and I am more or less familiar with their filthy sores of iniquitous cesspools. Yet I never wholly appreciated the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, whose sins and vices proved their undoing and their downfall until I visited this Indian nation. And he implored Congress to take greater action. Every white man in Osage County will tell you that the Indians are now running wild. The day has come when we must begin our restrictions of these monies or dismiss from our hearts and conscience any hope we have of building the Osage Indian into a true citizen. They're not going to assimilate if they don't have to. <laughs> exactly. Now, Chief Bacon Ryan. I'm sorry. That's his name. That's fantastic. Are you so jealous? So jealous. Because I feel like that should have been my name. I feel like maybe my mother made a mistake. Testified that whites had, quote, bunched us down here in the backwoods, the roughest part of the United States, thinking, we'll drive these Indians down where there is a big pile of rocks and put them there in that corner. And now that pile of rocks had turned out to be worth millions of dollars. And he said, everybody wants to get in here and get some of this money. Another chief explained that they didn't have money to pay children's hospital bills. The guardians were cutting off things like that. And he says, we have many little children here. We want to raise them and educate them. We want them to be comfortable. We do not want our money held up from us by somebody who cares nothing for us. We want our money now. We have it. It is ours. And we don't want some autocratic man to hold it up so we can't use it. It is an injustice to all of us. We do not want to be treated like a lot of little children. We are men, able to take care of ourselves. So this program was put into place by some racist asshole, literally. Like the Bureau of Indian Affairs is like, we've got to stop them from having money or they'll never be like us. They're just going to keep doing their Indian bullshit. And then we have a group of prominent white citizens who take on the role of guardian and use and abuse it in terrible ways, like cutting off food and money for hospital bills. And if you die, your guardian gets control of your money. All the pieces are falling into place. Right. And Molly had a guardian, too. She was deemed incompetent because she was full-blooded Osage. Well, I'm definitely incompetent. Yes. And so she had a guardian, and it was her husband, Ernest. Just to fill this out a little bit more, because it makes me so angry, and I think you should be angry with me. In 1924, the Indian Rights Association, which defended the rights of the Osage people, conducted an investigation into what it described as, and I'm quoting from an official document, an orgy of graft and exploitation. And the group documented how the riches of Oklahoma were being shamelessly 
again, quoting, shamelessly and openly robbed in a scientific and ruthless manner. And guardianships were plums to be distributed to the faithful friends of judges as rewards for their support in the poll. Judges were known to say to citizen, you vote for me and I'll get you a good guardianship. A white woman married to an Osage man described to a reporter how the locals would plot. A group of traders and lawyers would sprung up who selected certain Indians as their prey. They owned all the officials, and these men had an understanding with each other. They would say, you take so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and I'll take these. They selected Indians who had full headrights and large farms. And it went so far as, like, one guy absconded with all of his ward's possessions and left her in Osage County. And when she tried to get her money, he said that there was none left, and she had to raise her children in poverty. There was no bed, no chair, no food, no house. And when the baby got sick, the guardian refused to give her any of her own money. And without proper food and medical care, the baby died. So they're literally killing people openly just by refusing to take care of them. So murder is really not that big of a leap. No, I mean, not at all. You're starving them to death. What's the difference if you just shoot them? It's probably nicer. So with this backdrop, we've got to get to the bottom of this. This is a massive conspiracy. The Washington Post has said it. Now it's official. Definitely. So who are we going to get? Who are we going to call? I want to say Ghostbusters. No, that's okay. for another day. Okay. Though normally that is the right answer. But we're going to call J. Edgar Hoover. No. That's never the right answer. Not Hoover. Mincing yeah. Gate. Mincing Gate. So Teddy Roosevelt... <laughs> Better. Better. (laughs) Decided that there should be a Bureau of Investigation as an arm of the Justice Department. And he created it in 1908. Because there was, you know, this whole resistance to the idea of having any federal law enforcement. But he saw where there might be the need. And then there was a massive political scandal shortly following the invention of the FBI. You mean the teapot dome scandal? I do mean that. And I am so happy that we get a chance to talk about this because I knew it existed and I knew it's skosh about it, but I never felt really informed. So you actually read up on it for our conspiracies episode. Oh. It got cut. Oh. Yeah. Because those were like seven hours long. But this is Watergate before Watergate. This is the initial... Big government conspiracy to start the 20th century off. And it all starts with Warren fucking Harding. (laughs) You see, you thought it was G, right? It's effing. The G stands for effing somehow. I don't know. (laughs) So now he ran on a platform of balancing between the conservationist and industry. So this is post-Teddy. Yes. And we need to not save all the trees, is what he says. (laughs) Not all the trees. Just some of them. (laughs) So in 1920, Sinclair Oil, Marlin, and other oilmen helped finance the successful presidential bid of Warren Effing Harding. And he appointed Senator Albert Fall from New Mexico as Secretary of Interior in 1921. So Fall was a politically powerful senator, rancher, lawyer, and miner. 
So he soon convinced Harding to transfer oversight of the petroleum reserves from the Navy to the Interior Department. Fine. So in 1922, with no competitive bidding or any public announcement, Fall leased exclusive drilling rights to the entire Teapot Dome site to Mammoth Oil Company owned by... Sinclair Oil? Sinclair, would later become Sinclair Oil. So Fall also leased two reserves in California to the Pan American Petroleum Company owned by Edward Doney, another old friend of Fall's. Question. Yes. Why teapot dome? It looks like a teapot. And it's a dome. Yes. Okay. Okay, good. Got it. (laughs) So by April 1922, rumors of a shady deal began going around after a local Wyoming oil man noticed trucks with the Sinclair logo hauling oil field equipment up to the teapot dome. Because remember, they had announced this. They didn't say anything. And I'm guessing before it was like a federally protected site. Like it was not open for anyone to have access to its oil. Right, exactly. Okay. So the Wall Street Journal broke the news about the deal in an April 14th, 1922 article. And the very next day, Wyoming Democratic Senator John Kendrick introduced a resolution to open a Senate investigation into the dealing. Because, see, others had claims to the Teapot Dome, such as Colonel James G. Darden, but Fall had convinced Harding to send the Marines in to stop Darden from drilling. Oh, this is fucked up. This is Watergate before there was Watergate. Now, the Denver Post wrote it up. And was bribed off by Sinclair for a million dollars. Okay, and that's in what, 1921 money? Oh, yeah. Holy shit. And that's just not to write the story. That's the ultimate catch and kill, man. (laughs) It also tells you like how much it was worth. Exactly, exactly. So now Fall was part of Harding's cabinet, which was known as the Ohio Gang. Why Ohio? Because they were all... From Ohio, had Ohio roots, and they were a gang because they were shady AF. There were numerous accusations of corruption, including influence, peddling and selling permits for confiscated liquor from government warehouses. And at one point, Harding even complained to newspaper editor William Allen White, I have no trouble with my enemies. I can take care of my enemies all right. But my damn friends, my goddamn friends, White, they're the ones who keep me walking the floors at night. Oh my God, that's my favorite presidential quote maybe ever. So soon the Senate investigation found that Fall had received a $100,000 interest-free loan from Oilman Doney to purchase land for his New Mexico ranch. Now, as Doney admitted in a statement to the Senate, He had arranged for his son to deliver the cash, arranged in five $20,000 stacks in a black bag. Now, Doney gave him the money to buy the land, and Mm. Sinclair delivered a large herd of livestock to Falls Ranch, and his company transferred $300,000 in Liberty Bonds and cash to Falls' son-in-law. Ooh, they laundering that money. At one point, Harding asked the Commerce Secretary, Herbert Hoover. If you knew of a great scandal in our administration, (laughs) would you, for the good of the country and the party, expose it publicly, or would you bury it? And what did Hoover say? 
<laughs> it doesn't matter because the Senate investigation had already dug it up. So February 1929, before the ruling came down, Donnie's son was murdered. What? This is the guy that delivered the bag. The bag of cash. Oh my God. He was How killed. How is he not impeached? He was killed by his longtime friend, Hugh Plunkett, who then killed himself. Uh huh, I'm sure he did. Well, it's believed that Plunkett was worried that he would be charged for, you know, delivering the cash and conspiring and say murder or suicide. That's what they say. Bullshit. I call bullshit. Yeah, right? In context of all of this, what do you think? So, Fall was convicted of accepting a bribe from Doney and was fined $100,000 and sentenced to one year in prison. That's the first time that ever happened. Like that a cabinet member was sentenced? Yes, to prison. Holy hell, man. Now, interesting turn. Well, first of all, it's interesting that his name is Fall. He fell. He was the Fall guy. Oh, no. He was not the Fall guy. He fucking did it. Now, interestingly, no one was convicted of paying bribes. Oh, he took a bribe. Yeah. But no one paid a bribe. Well, right, because remember how he did that, that loan? That just it free was a loan. loan. Well, Donnie was so mad because, you know, his loanee. <laughs> the w- Donnie loanee. Wasn't paying back, so he foreclosed on his ranch. Bada boom. <laughs> so he got convicted for accepting a bribe that wasn't a bribe. Oh, he got convicted, and then as that was happening, they foreclosed on his ranch. Now, Sinclair served six months in jail on a charge of jury tampering. Oh, I bet. Fall served nine months in jail before being released due to failing health, and he died soon after. Now, interestingly, Harding accepted a suspiciously high offer to buy the hometown newspaper, the Marion Star, that he owned. And Harding and his wife also told friends about a year-long, all-expense-paid cruise around the world they planned to take, Mm. along with some 50 of their friends, once Harding's four-year term was over. Yeah, not seeking re-election was probably a good move there, Harding. (laughs) So during the Harding administration, the Justice Department had been packed with less than upright citizens. William Burns was the head of the Bureau... You'll remember him as the American Sherlock Holmes. That's the perfect head of the Bureau. And the Bureau was known as the Department of Easy Virtue by 1924. Through the entire investigation by the Senate, Burns and the Attorney General were trying to stop the investigation at every turn. Congressmen were shadowed. Offices were broken into. Phones were tapped. One senator denounced the various illegal plots, counterplots, espionage, decoys, dictographs that were being used not to detect and prosecute crime, but to shield profiteers, bribe takers, and favorites. Now, Calvin Coolidge fired Burns in the summer of 1924. Well, who are you going to get to replace the greatest detective ever? Hoover! Ah, mincing gate. He was only 29. (laughs) <laughs> Baby Hoover is hilarious. Like, it, it's really funny. <laughs> you know, he wore a size four, though. <laughs> Time, man. Hips. I'm convinced he was always 29, though. Like, I don't think he was ever five. So even though he somehow, his weaselly little self, was able to avoid getting tied to the Teapot Dome scandal, he had overseen the Bureau's rogue intelligence division, 
which had spied on individuals merely because of their political beliefs. So he keep doing that a little bit. Yeah, it's going to be a theme with Hoover. So he'd never been a detective before. His father and grandfather had been government diplomats. But at the time, he still lived with his mother. Fun. So they could borrow clothes. <laughs> Stop with the cross-dressing jokes. I don't care if it's not real. You know, you know, you know why I like, I like the joke? Because I don't care if anyone wants to wear a dress, but I know he, he would, would care. care. He would care. <laughs> and the other thing about that is I think that you and I may have tulped that into history existence. Yes, it's true. <laughs> so before he had gone to work for the Bureau, he'd been a clerk at the Library of Congress. And there, of course, used the Dewey Decimal System and was really good at data collection and organization and was able to use that with the FBI. What would become the FBI? Well, I'll accept his special filing cabinet that he kept in the secretary's office. (laughs) We don't talk about that. Which was not organized by the Dewey Decimal System. (laughs) So he's looking to prove himself. Prove the agency. Yes, and he wants to prove that it's vital and it's not a laughing stock and we're not just here to cover up for the teapot dome. That's right. We're not just Harding's little boys. No, Harding had a little girl. Read about that. <laughs> Go read his sexy love letters. Oh, his sexy penis love was named letters. Jerry. Oh. Anyway, Warren effing Harding, who knew? <laughs> I'm so embarrassed that I know what a president called his dick. You're about to learn what another president called him. <laughs> <laughs> Once that WAPO article comes out. <laughs> and then there will be a list verse about it one day. At the least a BuzzFeed with gifts. Oh, no. So now as J. Edgar Hoover started to hear about all of this goings on in Oklahoma and being a man that wanted to prove himself, he was going to get into this investigation. Yes. Of these murders. This massive conspiracy to kill rich Indians. These murders that kept happening. And so, right as the federal government is getting involved, this man named Henry Roan was found murdered. And he was an Osage, and he was 40 years old. Grand rights of Roan. He was married with two children. He'd once worn his hair in two long braids before being forced to cut them off at boarding school, just as he'd been made to change his name from Roan Horse. But even without the braids... Even entombed in the car, where he was found, his long, handsome face and tall, lean body evoked those of an Osage warrior. So he was discovered in his car, shot in the head. Now, interestingly, Roan had been married to Molly Burkhart in the past. So many links. It was an arranged marriage, um, and it apparently just, like, didn't work out. And because it was tribal, they didn't need a legal divorce And so they just kind of both went their separate ways. But Molly had never told her husband about it because he had a jealous side and she didn't want to cause unnecessary trouble. And it just didn't seem like anything worth mentioning. As these murders continued to happen, people began to have this this fear for their lives, this very deep and intense fear for their lives. It seemed like anyone who had a head right could potentially be next. I mean, it's not like being overzealous. (laughs) No. Dropping like flies. So around this time, a lot of people in town were having electric lights installed on their property outdoors so that they could... To watch. To watch. Yeah. And they were called the frayed lights. Like, afraid. Hmm. But as the lights burned, even as every Osage knows, as protection against the stealthy approach of a grim specter or an unseen hand, 
that has left blight upon the Osage land and converted the broad acres, which other Indian tribes enviously regard as demi-paradise, into a Golgotha and a field of dead men's skulls. The perennial question in the Osage land is who will be next. And so in this fear, in this panic, a man named John Palmer, who is a half Sioux lawyer, sent a letter to Charles Curtis. Now you mentioned Hoover earlier, who is asked, if you knew of a scandal, would you tell anybody? Well, eventually Hoover would become a president and his vice president would be Charles Curtis. Now Charles Curtis is the first Native American to hold that office. He was a member of the Call Nation. And at the time he was a senator from Kansas. He was also part Osage. And so Palmer appealed to Curtis, please, please, if you could, maybe send some federal bureau people down here and get them to investigate. Palmer told Curtis that the situation was more dire than anyone could possibly imagine, and that unless he and other men of influence got the DOJ to act, the demons behind the most foul series of crimes ever committed in this country would escape justice. So everyone's afraid. They're trying to get federal investigators down there. And Bill and Rita, brother-in-law and sister of Anna, have really gotten shaken up, and they've left their home and moved into town so that there are more people around. And they liked it because, you know, everyone had the lights up and there were watchdogs and it just seemed safer. And Bill said, now that we've moved, maybe they'll leave us alone. But shortly after they moved in, dogs in the neighborhood started dying of apparent poisonings. And eventually Bill even confided to a friend that he didn't expect to live very long. And then one night, just before three in the morning, a man who lived nearby, Bill and Rita, heard a loud explosion. Explosion? Their house had been bombed. Holy shit. It exploded. Massive bomb. And so everyone's out trying to go through the wreckage and see if there are any survivors. And while they were doing so, they heard someone calling for help. And finally, they found Bill under the rubble. And one of the Schoen brothers, one of the doctors, said that in all his years, he'd never seen a man in so much agony. He was hollering and in awful misery. And he tried to comfort him telling him, I won't let you suffer. And eventually he was taken to the hospital. Rita and their housekeeper both died in the blast. But Bill was taken to the hospital. And it took a long time for investigators or lawmen to get back to Fairfax or Osage County because they were all the way for a court case. Well, that's convenient. An investigator noted that and said that the time of the deed was deliberate because it was done while the officers were all the way. Now, Molly was shaken up by this. Because she remembered that just a short time before this had happened, she'd been in bed one night and someone came on her property with her and Ernest right there and stole their car. And she's like, I don't want people, you know, what, what were they doing there? Is that what they were doing to my sister and my brother-in-law? So Bill was staying in the hospital and he died three days later. And the Schoen brothers said he never said anything about anybody who might have done this. But now Bill and Rita were both dead. So the only member of that family, Anna's family, that's left is Molly. Seems like they're almost just taking every single person out. Doesn't it? But Molly's left. Right. So it's got to be related to her head right. Somehow. So all the head rights fall onto her, right? Now they have. So she has all of it. Substantial fortune. Right. Because her mom... Her, and two of her sisters have all died. So now it's just her. 
But shortly after the massive explosion that killed Bill and Rita and their housekeeper, a man named W.W. Vaughn was a former prosecutor, and he had decided to try and take up this case. And he seems like he was a man with some real integrity. He said that the criminal element was a parasite upon those who make their living by honest means. And he was trying to work with private investigators to help solve the string of murders in the Osage community. But in June of 1923, he got this call from a friend of his named George Bigheart. Now, he was a big deal in the community because he was a relative of a legendary former chief named James Bigheart. But he was in the hospital dying of a suspected poisoning. Another one? Another one. And so he was in a hospital in Oklahoma City. And Bigheart told Vaughn, our former prosecutor, that he had information about the murders, but he would only speak to him and only in person. So he called him up. Right. Well, he had, or he had somebody do it. I'm not sure. But he was told, he's like, is he going to make it? And they were like, you need to hurry. So he did. But he told his wife before he left to go meet him in the hospital that he had this hiding spot. And he'd stashed evidence about the murders and also some money. And she was to take the papers, the evidence, and go turn it over to authorities immediately if anything happened to him. Oh, so he was very worried. He was suspicious that they might be on his trail. Oh, absolutely. Because he was on their trail. Right. Loop. But there was also a substantial amount of money, enough supposedly to take care of her and their 10 children. And he's like, that's there. The evidence is there. If anything happens to me, just go look and you'll be set. Now he gets to the hospital and Big Heart is still conscious. And he tells everyone to clear out of the room and the two men talk. And then he gave him some documents. No, Vaughn then telephones the Osage County Sheriff and says that he has everything he needs to prove his case and he's heading back on the first train. And then the sheriff asks if he knew who killed Big Heart, who had died by now. And he says, oh, I know more than that. So he hangs up, goes to the station. He gets on the train. And is never seen again. Almost. Okay. <laughs> Owner vanishes, leaving clothes in Pullman car. Tulsa Daily World reported... Mystery Cloak's Disappearance of W.W. Vaughn of Pawhuska. Now, the Boy Scouts, whose very first troop had been in Pawhuska, went out and joined the search for Vaughn. There were bloodhounds, and eventually his body was found lying by the railroad tracks, 30 miles north of Oklahoma City. He'd been thrown from the train, and his neck was broken. And he was stripped naked, just like the man in D.C. The documents were gone. And when his widow went to go look in the hidey hole for the evidence and the money, everything had been cleaned out. Now, officially at this time, the death toll in this string of murders had climbed to 24. It's insane. There was a rancher who'd been drugged and pushed down a flight of stairs, as well as a man that was gunned down in Oklahoma City on his way to brief state officials about the case. So 1923, J. Edgar Hoover sends over Tom White. It said that men who worked for White were supposed to know his job and do it. Another man who worked for him said that he could be honest till it hurt. Now, in that time, you know, agents were supposed to strictly investigate, gather facts. So in those days, we had no power of arrest. Agents were also not authorized to carry guns. Years later, a bureau agent who had worked for White wrote that he was as God-fearing as the mighty defenders of the Alamo saying that he was an impressive sight in his large suede Stetson and a plumb line running from head to heel would touch every part of the rear of his body. He had a majestic tread as soft and silent as a cat. He talked like he looked and shot 
right on target. He commanded the utmost in respect and scared the daylights out of young Easterners, like me, who looked upon him with a mixed feeling of reverence and fear. Albeit, if one looked intently enough into his steel-gray eyes, he could see a kindly and understanding gleam. Which, by the way, awesome bio. Like, awesome description. So Tom was one of five children, and he had been raised by his father, who was the warden of the Travis County Jail. In Austin. Austin. Yeah. So a 19th century book profiling distinguished Texans said of his father... Mr. White belongs to that class of solid, substantial farmers of which Travis County can boast. He is well known in the country, and the people have the greatest confidence in his energy and integrity of character. Tom later said, I was raised practically right in the jail. I could look down from my bedroom window and see the jail corridors and the doors to some of the cells. Now one time at the jail, a prisoner pulled a knife and stabbed his father from behind. Tom could see the knife protruding from the father's back with blood gushing so the prisoner tried to twist the knife into his father who seemed ready to die when suddenly his father drove his finger into the prisoner's eye causing the eye to pop out tom could see it dangling from the socket his father subdued the prisoner but tom would relive the scene all his life now emmett also would allow some of the non-violent prisoners in the jail to come and stay in his house and live with his kids. Yeah. You know. I mean, they weren't dangerous. They were just in jail. That's all. Wow, times have changed. Mm-hmm. Now, Tom attended an execution by hanging for the first time when he was 12. His father served as the executioner. As Tom listened to Preacher Red Nichols' final statement, Sheriff White's been very accommodating to me indeed. I feel prepared to meet death. My soul is at peace with all mankind. Then the preacher offered his own holy words. Ed Nichols is to swing into eternity. Sheriff Death is on his black steed, is but a short distance away, coming to arrest the soul of this man, to meet the trial of the higher bar, where God himself is supreme ruler, Jesus, his son, the attorney, and the Holy Ghost, the prosecutor. So in 1905, when Tom was 24, he enlisted in the Texas Rangers. But by 1917, he had taken the oath to become a special agent for the Bureau of Investigation. So it was decided that White was going to be the public face of the investigation in Osage County. But most of his other agents operated undercover. He recruited a New Mexico sheriff who was 56 and the oldest member of the team. And he was very adept at assuming identities. He pretended to be everything from a cow rustler to a counterfeiter. And then there was a Texas Ranger who, according to his superior, was best suited for situations, quote, where there is an element of danger. Then he brought in an experienced deep cover operative who was a former insurance salesman, and that would come in handy. And then there was another investigator named Berger who had been working with the investigation previously, and he was going to be the other openly agent agent. And then another agent named Frank Smith, who listed his interest thusly, pistol and rifle practice, big game hunting, game fishing, mountain climbing, adventures, and manhunting. Now, at this time, there was a clear distinction between these, like, ranger kind of agents and the Hoover Boys. And the Hoover Boys the were... G-men. The G-Men. Were the polished shoes, educated, desk jockeys. They were Hoover in his own, own image again and again. And these were the old school, rough and tumble frontier men. Or 
the older type of uneducated agents. But then he also added to this team a man named John Wren, who was a one-time spy for revolutionary leaders in Mexico. But he was an American Indian. He may have been the only one at the time. But he would refer to himself as one of Hoover's braves and carefully and very adeptly handled many delicate cases on reservations. So they decided, after reviewing the case, that this could not possibly be the work of one individual. Rather, it had to be a conspiracy. They thought it was probably someone hiring people to do their dirty work because the murders had no consistent M.O. And they believed that there was one mastermind behind all of it. Not impulsive but someone who was very intelligent and also understood toxic substances and was very calculating and didn't care how long it took. So we had a patient, evil mastermind. A supervillain. Pulling the strings behind the curtain. Yes. Somewhere. Now they all came into town and they all took up their new identities. Right, because they were going to uncover who was behind all this right and the best way to uncover things is to undercover yourself so two of them pretended to be cattlemen and then the insurance agent showed up and opened a real insurance business which was handy and then agent wren arrived as an indian medicine man who claimed to be searching for his relatives all right so they were playing their parts (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then they discovered that there was a great deal of missing evidence and that there were stories circulating that didn't make a whole lot of sense. It was revealed that the coroner's inquest records for Anna Brown's murder had disappeared. My desk was broken into and the testimony disappeared, the Justice of the Peace said, and none of the physical evidence or statements had been preserved from the various crime scenes, but the undertaker had secretly kept a key piece of evidence out of the hands of investigators. And that was Anna's skull. The skull? Yes. And the thing about the skull is that there was no exit wound. Mm, So they should have been able to find the bullet. One would presume. But the brothers were unable to do it, even though they checked twice. Now, the Rose Osage, that gossip that the other woman killed her, that was investigated. And so they interrogated the woman who'd originally came forward with the story. And she admitted that Rose had never told her anything about killing Anna. And she said that a white man had come to her house, written up the statement, and forced her to sign it, even though none of it was true. And so not only is evidence missing, evidence is being manufactured. Wow, this is so intricate. It is. And so then they recruit a number of criminal informants. Because they figure if this guy's hiring low lives, we need to hire some low lives because eventually we'll hire the same low life. That is an interesting way to go about it. So they brought in Kelsey Morrison, and Agent Berger described him as unusually shrewd and reckless and self confessed criminal. And he dressed like a dance hall hustler and had the nickname Slim. Talks and smokes cigarettes a lot, Agent Berger noted. Sniffs nose and works mouth and nose like a rabbit almost continuously, especially when excited. And so they cut a deal with him because he had an assault charge pending and he agreed to be an informant. Berger noted, this arrangement is strictly confidential and has not been divulged outside of this bureau to anyone under any circumstances. Now, during one of their meetings, Morrison begged them to, quote, get the sons of bitches who did the killings before they got him. Agent Berger warned Morrison to look out for double crossing and traps. And there seemed to be a lot of that around. At night, White sometimes met with his team in the countryside, 
they'd get together in the darkness with no lights, with no one knowing where they were, just to try to avoid being eavesdropped upon. And then agents reported being followed. White gave his men advice about what to do in the case that their cover was blown. He said, keep your balance, avoid any rough stuff if possible. But he made it clear that they should all carry weapons, even though they weren't officially allowed to. And says, but but if you have to fight to survive, do a good job. Oh, that's a Texas Ranger. <laughs> I suppose carry a gun, get one. If you got to use it. <laughs> do a good job. That's right. White found himself wandering through a wilderness of mirrors, his work more akin to espionage than to criminal investigation. There were moles and double agents and possibly triple agents. But of all the potential double crossers, the investigator originally hired by King Hale, Pike, stood out. Now, eventually they were able to flip Pike, and he disclosed that he'd never really been hired to solve the murder of Anna Brown. In fact, he'd been asked to conceal Brian's whereabouts on the night of the crime. Brian, you'll remember, is Ernest's brother. Ernest is Molly's husband. Pike told the agents that he was supposed to manufacture evidence to generate a false witness to shape an alibi, as he put it. And then, in a truly drop-the-mic moment, he revealed that his orders had come directly from... The king. The king. King Hale. He's the mastermind. He seems to be. He said that when he met with Hale and Brian, who was definitely not where he said he was, there was one other person present. Who? Ernest. Ernest. Molly's husband. husband. Oh, no. Yeah, the guardian of the lone survivor. The one that would get the rights? Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. So meanwhile, lawmen had tracked down a few counter-witnesses to bust up Brian Burkhart's supposed alibi. And they said that they had seen Anna and Brian together on the night she died. But there was also a mysterious third man. So the investigators also began to look into the bombing, and new revelations were brought to light. When Bill Smith's lawyer was questioned, he said that Bill had never said who was responsible for blowing up their house. But then he was questioned further, and at the hospital, he said, Bill Smith said, before he died, You know I only had two enemies in the world, and those enemies were William Hale, the king of the Osage Hills, and his nephew, Ernest Burkhart. The investigators asked James Schoen about this, and eventually he divulged the truth. I would hate to say positively that he said that Bill Hale blew him up, but he did say Bill Hale was his only enemy. And what did he say about Ernest Burkhart, a prosecutor asked. He said they were the only two enemies he knew of, Bill Hale and Ernest Burkhart. So White was now growing more and more certain about this Burkhart-Hale nexus. Now, around this time, Henry Roan's murder begins to make sense. Things start coming to light. You'll remember our insurance agent friend. Yeah. Our undercover insurance agent friend. He found out through the course of business that King Hale had taken out a $10,000 life insurance policy on Ron. So he was taking out life insurance policies on some of the people that eventually were killed. Well, at least this one for sure we know. And he had tried multiple other times to take out a life insurance policy for more money. Um, And people had turned him down and been like, no, you can't do that. You're not even his guardian. Don't be stupid. Now, they brought Roan in drunk to be examined by the doctor. 
in order to get this life insurance policy. So when they brought him in to have him examined by the doctor, the doctor said, do you mean to kill this Indian? And he says, hell yes. No. He did it. Well, that's he said, hell yes. Yeah, that's that is, an admission. That's quite the admission. And so he'd taken out the life insurance policy, he'd had the guy murdered, he'd gone to multiple outlets to get the life insurance policy. So it's all, it's looking like, yes, Hale is very capable of murdering for money. Okay, well, so that makes sense. If he kills that guy, he's going to get the life insurance money. How does this all relate to the whole Anna's family and all these deaths? How's he going to get those head rights? Well, remember that Brian and Ernest are his nephews. And also married into the family. Right. And also their guardians. Only Ernest, but yes. So... When White's looking at this, he begins to realize that this has all been done in a very deliberate sequence in order to make sure that Molly has all of the head rights. Evil mastermind. So he deliberately set up the dominoes to where if he tipped it off the right way, the head rights would eventually all fall onto one person right. who would be the final victim who would then leave all of the head rides, all the dough, all the oil to his nephew. That's right. There was a kink in the plan because it was necessary if it had gone the way it was planned. All of the wealth would have ended up there. But because Bill Smith survived for three days, he didn't technically die at the same time as his wife. Right. It had to go through another channel because he had to leave it to someone. And it may have gotten a little messed up there, but that was what the intent was with them both dying at the same time. Right. And why it couldn't be a single leave him in a car kind of murder. And you would think a firebomb to a house would get Would have better. accomplished the task in the 1920s before modern medicine, especially. So they know this. They know it. But how do they prove it? Besides him telling the doctor, I'm going to kill that Indian. Circumstantial. <laughs> Well, luckily, there was a large criminal element in the vicinity who could really benefit from people who could make deals to get them out of other shit they'd gotten mm-hmm. themselves into. And White had been hiring some of these low-life scum. Right. And so they're like, cool, we're going to go talk to the scum. But then they found a problem. A string of potential witnesses found themselves, unfortunately, deceased. Well, isn't that convenient? So convenient, all of this. So there was Spencer, our phantom terror... <laughs> Mentioned earlier, but he had been gunned down by a posse and he could have been a corroborating witness. And then there was another potential corroborating witness for all of this uh, who died of drinking poison alcohol. And then a notorious bootlegger was found dead and he could have corroborated it. He was a victim of a single car crash and locals swore his brake lines had been cut. And then there was a man named Asa Kirby who had allegedly set off the bomb at the Smith home. But Asa was shot when he tried to rob a local store. He was going to steal a stash of diamonds, but the store owner had been tipped off that he was going to come rob the store. Oh, well, So no he was way. waiting for him with a shotgun. Now, interestingly, King Hale had tipped the shop owner off, but he had also suggested the target. Wow, I can't believe. Even a diamond heist. It's like I know. Classic story. So White was really getting concerned about Molly's safety, obviously. In late 1925, a local priest revealed that he'd received a secret message from Molly. Her life, she said, 
was in danger, and an agent from the Office of Indian Affairs soon picked, her, picked up another report. She was not ill because of her diabetes. She was ill because someone was tampering with the insulin that she was being injected with. No. Yes. There's no way that could be her guardian. <laughs> Well, it was the Schoen brothers that were giving her the injections. They keep coming up. Like, they're not officially implicated, but my God. (laughs) Willing accomplices. The priest eventually told Wren, who was the undercover agent, about it. And Molly was removed from the home and immediately got better. Now, eventually, Ernest broke under pressure and flipped on his uncle. And then his uncle had him intimidated. And he flipped again. Many, many flips. But originally... Eventually, enough people flipped on each other that they were able to get a court case together. The court proceedings were very theatrical and very full of dirty tricks. Burkhart was the first to be tried. Molly was questioned, and she said that she wanted for the men who did this to her family to be punished. It makes no difference who they are, the attorney asked. No, she said adamantly. But she still could not believe that Ernest was involved in the plot. And then it was revealed that Hale and Anna had been having an affair. Oh, no. And he was the father of her unborn child. Oh, my gosh. This is insane. It is. There were allegations. Oh, God. They all got up on the stand and said that they had been shocked with electric devices by the FBI and tortured (laughs) and made up this elaborate story about police brutality. And there was a fight in the courtroom one day. A defense attorney alleged that the government had committed fraud and a prosecutor shouted, I'll meet the man who says it in the courtyard, and they had to be physically separated. Nice. Should let him just fight it out. Get it over with. Duel. There was much, much, much witness tampering. I can't imagine. One local paper wrote, The attitude of a pioneer cattleman toward a full-blooded Indian is fairly well recognized. But an Osage tribe member put it more bluntly. It is a question in the mind whether a jury is considering a murder case or not. The question for them to decide is whether a white man killing an Osage is murder or merely cruelty to animals. Oh my God. The first jury is unable to reach a verdict, but they're retried and found guilty on October 1926 for the murder of Henry Roan. Not even for Anna, but Brian Burkhardt is found guilty of her murder. Brian Burkhart confessed to Anna's murder, but he turned state wit- state's witness and was granted immunity for his testimony against another man who was involved. White eventually left the Bureau and became the warden of Leavenworth Prison in Kansas, where he eventually had care of none other than the King of the Osage Hills himself. King Hale? King Hale. Well, that is just such a good twist. Serendipitous. So the Osage Guardian practice was changed in 1931. A court ruled that Molly was no longer a ward of the state, and it is further ordered, adjudged, and decreed by the court that said Molly Burkhart, Osage Alati, number 285, is hereby restored to competency, and the order heretofore made adjudging her to be an incompetent person is hereby vacated. So that was very nice. Now David Gran began to investigate the murders fairly recently. And he notes that the Osage have traded their oil money for casinos, and they won a settlement for $380 million from the U.S. government for mishandling of their oil money. He says that Molly did eventually divorce Ernest and remarried and seemed happy. Additional research revealed that the Reign of Terror began in 1918, not 1921, as previously thought. So this had been going on. Yes. 
And one thing that he uncovered in his research is that a lot of children seem to have been murdered. Oh, my God. It came out in later years that Molly and her children were supposed to go stay with Rita and Bill on the night the bomb went off. But their son had an earache, so she stayed home. Oh, wow. So Ernest Burkhart was willing to kill his own wife and children for this plot. Oh, man. There was a definite trend uh, in the documents that Grant examined. And he noted that Mathis, who is the guardian of the mother and Anna, had nine wards, nine guardianships, and seven of them had died under mysterious circumstances. There was another that had had 11 wards, and nine had died under mysterious circumstances, and the trend just continued and continued. So this was not just one conspiratorial group. No, it couldn't all be King Hale's fault. Like, he, he definitely did it. He was definitely a conspirator. Oh, yeah. But it seems like the entire world was conspiring against them. It seems almost like he may have gotten the idea from other people and created the, a master plot. Where other people were collecting one or two head rights, he'd have 50, please. It's an incredibly heavy story, and it's so interesting that it's an example of the Department of Justice getting its feet under itself and actually bringing a white man to trial for the murder of Osage people and successfully prosecuting him. Yeah. Which is a, a huge step forward in justice. Like, that is a great thing. But it's such an overwhelming injustice. And there's a certain irony to the weight of the injustice. But it's another example of the government thinking they know best, stepping in, saying, no, no, you can't handle it, we'll do it for you, and just ruining lives. <laughs> All right, so let's move back up in time to 1977. The hair was big, the fonts were cool, and there were sequins everywhere. It was Game 2 of the World Series, the Yankees and the Dodgers. What? Why baseball, Jacob? Well, as night descended, ABC was broadcasting the game, cut to a shot. Helicopter, Goodyear blimp, one of the two. There was an overhead view of the Yankee Stadium in the surrounding neighborhood. But what was visibly on the camera was a massive fire burning. Well, as Howard Cosell famously said, there it is, ladies and gentlemen, the Bronx is burning. I've heard this. So not only was the Bronx burning... But so were large swaths of Brooklyn and Bushwick. Oh, all the hip neighborhoods. Now. They weren't then. Which, by the way, he never actually said that line. Why? Why didn't he say it? It's just not exactly that line. Like, this did happen. He did comment on it. And they went to it, I think, five times Uh during the game. They showed it and brought it up. But, for example, fires had destroyed 97% of the buildings in seven Bronx census tracts. Now, during the 70s, the Bronx became, as the New York Times put it, an enduring symbol of America's urban catastrophe. Ronald Reagan would later describe it as a bombed-out London after the war. Oh, Reagan. I love that America was like, we're going to have cities and be sophisticated. We have no fucking idea how to city. (laughs) We're really bad at cities. So now, Jose Serrano, who's a Bronx congressman, and who was a state assemblyman in 1977, said, When I recall, more than anything else was the uncertainty of not knowing when the building was going to burn, when the landlord was going to cut back services, when you find yourself in a building the landlord totally walks away from. The housing stock was going to waste and abandon. In the winter of 1978, the South Bronx 
was already a moonscape. It was abandoned. There were charcoal shards. The cops who worked the 41st Precinct started to call their station the Little House on the Prairie. Oh, how apropos. Because there were so few surviving buildings or families. Now, previously, they had the moniker of Fort Apache. They're really just doubling down on Because they were dealing with all of, you know, savages. (laughs) Whatever. It was the Wild West. Lovely. They even made a movie. Of what? The West? Yeah, I know. I've seen them. No, this Fort Apache was in the Bronx. Okay. So by 1981, two-thirds of the 94,000 people who lived in the South Bronx had left. Two-thirds. Yes. That's the same percentage that the Osage tribe was reduced by. Why is everyone leaving? Are they making a national park? Is there oil? Are there Sooners? Well, the buildings were being caught on fire. They were being let go. As one could say. Going to seed. Yes. But the South Bronx had not always been like this. In the years before World War II, it was an immigrant enclave. You had Mm. Jewish settlements. You had Italians and other immigrants settling there. And like living in kind of homogeneous communities and building their own little piece of America. Yeah, yeah. It's where you get things like Little Italy. Exactly. Etc. So after the Second World War, new housing was being built, and the makeup of the population changed. Construction ranged from luxury apartment buildings to public housing in the Southern Bronx. So by the 1920s, the Great Reform went astray in New York City. They had this master plan in 1929 that involved not only lots of slum clearance, but also deindustrialization. They were going to move the factories out of New York to the Burbs. It's going to clear Manhattan to become a cultural and financial hub. Well, that happened. It did. Between 1959 and 1989, over 600,000 manufacturing jobs were gone from New York City. So this made New York City the highest proportion of population not in the workforce. Ah. So it created massive amounts of poverty. So were the factories like promptly reopening in their new location in Bushwick? Or were they like, one further day out. we'll get to it? Well, further out. Okay. And they're moving to other places. Okay, so not like you could just make the commute. Exactly. Exactly. Uh. So Robert Moses is one of the people that spearheaded these big changes. The good and the bad. Helped build the UN, Lincoln Center, but also was very instrumental in slum clearance. It, it doesn't even sound nice. It doesn't, like, it just sounds like it's going to fuck people over. <laughs> because it did. Now, this resulted in greater segregation and a greater need for public housing. So, in 1949, the Federal Housing Act passed. Now, Title I allowed for the federal government to pay for a large sum of the cost of condemnation of a property. So, buyouts. Okay. Title Three authorized 810,000 units of federally financed public housing. So Title I projects in Harlem completely destroyed majority black communities. So all this slim clearance displaced 100 to 200,000 people from Manhattan and downtown Brooklyn, often into public housing units, many that were being built in the South Bronx. This was not only happening in New York, but all over the country. Between 1949 and 1973, 2,532 projects were carried out in 992 cities. 
displaced one million people, two-thirds of them being black. So they're disproportionately affecting a specific demographic of people. Right. Because, of course, you know, lower socioeconomic status. And James Baldwin famously called this urban renewal projects, as they were really called, not slum clearance, mm-hmm. as they were nicely called, Negro removal. James Baldwin fucking gets it, man. Now, of course, there were racist policies for housing, so they were kicked out of these homes and then couldn't find another one in other areas of the city. All of these new projects that they were going to build, these new housing projects, weren't built yet. And then someone will scream, get a job. What are you doing out here? Wandering around without a home. You're so lazy. And now, of course, white flight is usually brought up as a reason for problems in the major city. White flight's really a, a great, like, tag. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But it's really class flight because you had a lot of influential minorities leaving too. Yeah. But between 1972 and 1980, 1.3 million whites left New York City. But it's basically like if you can afford to get out, you get out. It's like less to do with race. It's more class. It's more class. But with all of these people leaving, over a million people leaving the city... It did leave new places available, like in the Bronx. So shit really hit the fan in the 1970s. So much shit. Some of these displaced, low-income people were placed in public housing. But if they weren't, they had to find somewhere to live. And many housing units had been demolished in the Bronx to create the Cross Bronx Expressway. And many buildings in the Bronx became rent-controlled or federally subsidized. That seems... Positive. Well, they weren't making as much money on the buildings anymore. So that creates a problem for greedy landlords. Exactly. So the landlords were no longer making a profit and had little incentive to maintain the building. So they just let it go to seed. Just let it go to seed. And then HUD, um, Housing and Urban Development, had policies that gave priority for public housing to those who lost homes related to fires. Ah, ah, I see where the light bulb's coming. I see it. Waiting for the switch to click on. Now, while some tenants definitely did light their homes on fire, the idea that it was all tenants doing this is complete bullshit and just a myth. It was really the landlords doing it. If you go research this, if you mm-hmm. go and you set out and be like, no, I've always heard it was people lighting their houses on fire, you will find examples of people doing it themselves, oh, tenants doing it, it themselves. Without a doubt, it happened. Okay, but most, the majority of the cases, you would say, were actually the landlords doing it. There were many, 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 many cases of it. The Village Voice did an investigatory piece in the 1980s, and they found that over the last five years, five years previously, 250 buildings, all owned by one interlocking network of landlords, and all insured for large amounts of money, had been burned down. Okay, so while the incentive for a tenant might be you get priority placement and housing, the incentive for the landlord is insurance money. Insurance money. Which seems weightier. Yeah, and a way out. And Yeah, they get out, the rent control building's gone, they don't have to deal with it anymore, they get the insurance money, they can go sink that into some new scheme. Sorry, I'm not personally against landlords and or real estate people it just sounds that way (laughs) only ones that commit arson yeah well they discovered that there is this circle of landlords it's conspiracy really all centered around a guy named joe bald (laughs) he was a convicted felon with ties to the mafia 
and he used a series of one of his 50 shell companies. Or he would just like buy interest in some buildings to, you know, insure these buildings and to get the money. Or, and he would even act as a fire broker for other landlords. What does that mean? Like put you in touch with an arsonist? Yep. I was joking. I was joking. (laughs) They estimated that in 1980 money, they had made $5 million in insurance claims. In 1980 money. So one example, a 28 unit building. Bought by Bald in 1976, and they cut off services. Did no repairs, homes went unheated, and then late that summer, a fire broke out. I find this less than mysterious. Then in December, two other fires broke out. Now, they ended up collecting $15,200 from a state-run insurance pool, and a few months later, the building was sealed and in 1977, they applied for a low-cost city loan to rehabilitate the property. If you could see the side eye that I am giving Joe fucking bald. Joe effing bald. Right? So by the 1970s, the Bronx was a victim of arson fires, rampant crime, a lack of city services, and abandonment and neglect by landlords. The devastation and destruction of the South Bronx and other areas was not only related to arson fires, but in a way was permitted by the government. Let's talk about the Nixon administration. I love to talk about the Nixon administration. They did so much wrong. So Daniel Patrick Moynihan was one of Nixon's advisors on urban and social policy. So he sent out a memo, and as the New York Times called it when they leaked it on March 1st of Hmm. 1970, memo on the status of Negroes. No. You are familiar with the problem of crime. Let me draw your attention to another phenomenon, exactly parallel, and originated in exactly the same social circumstances. Fire. Unless I mistake the trends, we are heading for a genuinely serious fire problem in American cities. In New York, for example, between 1956 and 1969, the overall fire alarm rate more than tripled. These alarms are concentrated in slum neighborhoods, primarily black. In 1968, one slum area had an alarm rate per square mile of 13 times that the city as a whole. Many of these fires are the result of population density, but a great many are more or less deliberately set. Fires are in fact, quote, a leading indicator of social pathology for a neighborhood. They come first. Crime and the rest follow. The psychiatric interpretation of fire setting is complex, but it relates to the type of personalities which slums produce. Oh my fucking God. The district court in New York is named after this man, by the way. (laughs) He went on to say, the time may have come when the issue of race could benefit from a period of benign neglect. Moynihan, you get inside eye too. This is ridiculous, Jacob. Now later as a U.S. Senator, he would oppose federal housing construction efforts in the South Bronx saying people in the South Bronx don't want housing or they wouldn't burn it down. My God. It's fairly clear that housing is not the problem in the South Bronx. Okay, let's go over this one more time. So he's saying that we can tell which communities are going to run wild with crime by the frequency of deliberately set fires because it's a pathology fire setting and so is crime. And therefore, we can predict which areas will become crime-ridden by observing how many fires are deliberately set and just ignoring them and letting it all play out. Basically. Because at this time, 
you know, the idea that a lot of these fires were arson was not floating around in the popular opinion. It was very much that these degenerate people were setting fire to the houses themselves because they were just crazy, crazy, crazy. Because that's what slums produce. Okay. Instead of saying like when these fires happen, people are displaced and have nowhere to live and become desperate. We say it's all just the same pathology. That's what he's saying. Oh my God. So he got some of this information from the Rand Corporation. Oh Christ. Okay. Rand Corporation. This is the same Rand Corporation that worked with Robert McNamara to basically start Vietnam. Yeah, that one. Okay. So they were hired by New York City to look at public services, such as fire response, to try and streamline. Now, they said among the most rapidly increasing alarm type in slums are false alarms and deliberately set fires. Alarm instance is termed an accurate and timely indicator of neighborhood physical and social conditions and a leading indicator of social change. This is not what Sam Cooke meant. (laughs) So they wanted to streamline, which in government speak equals cut. They wanted to cut fire service? They wanted to cut whatever they could. Because by early 1975, New York City was about to go bankrupt. Okay. They owned five to six billion dollars in short-term debt out of an operating budget of 11 and a half billion dollars. The city was on the verge of bankruptcy because LaGuardia's many social programs began to collapse under their own weight and cost. And clearly they were working. So the accountants worked at a deal and the city began lots of austerity measures. Among them, not responding to fires? We'll get there. So austerity, they have to cut somewhere, right? Right. So they did a appeal to the federal government for help and Ford insisted that the city's day of reckoning had come. What does that mean? Does he think it's fucking Sodom and Gomorrah? He said that he would veto any bill that has its purpose a bailout of New York City to prevent a default. <laughs> and we come to Gerald Ford again. So this speech provoked the most famous headline in the history of the New York Daily News usually a very conservative paper that had one of the highest circulations of any paper in America at the time and 144-point type, its front page said, Ford to city, drop dead. <laughs> Accurate. Some people say that Donald Rumsfeld, who was Ford's chief of staff, thought that if New York failed, then his hometown of Chicago could maybe become the next financial center of the world. What the fuck is this grudge between Chicago and New York? So crime and violent crime had been increasing rapidly for years in the city. The numbers of murders in the city had more than doubled over the decade. Car thefts and assaults had more than doubled. Rapes and burglaries had tripled. And robberies had gone up tenfold. Now let's say we were going to travel to the illustrious New York City that we saw in Taxi Driver. Okay, I don't want to. But it looks like so much fun. No, no, it does not. Now, if you were going to get off the airport in June of 1975, you'd be handed a pamphlet. Handy. Does it say like, do you know Jesus? It says, welcome to Fear City. Helltown. Yeah. And it had a picture of like a grim reaper on the front. No. So predictable. Stark headlines on these pamphlets were subtitled, A Survival Guide for Visitors to the City of New York. Inside was a list of nine guidelines that might allow you to get out of the city alive and with your personal property intact. Are these people from Chicago that are handing out this pamphlet? Oh, no. These plainclothes people were cops. 
For what? New York City. What the fuck are they doing? Well, they'd print out one million Fear City pamphlets to hand out, and they would be followed up with more pamphlets aimed at New Yorkers, such as, if you haven't been mugged yet. No. And when it happens to you. So the new head of the Patrolman's Benevolent Association had decided on this plan. It's a scheme. Well, the mayor had announced severe reductions in salaries, pensions, and working conditions, plus the layoff of 51,768 city workers, a sixth of its employees, all due to this austerity. Mm -hmm. So they wanted people to see the police as absolutely necessary. Needed. Because the you, war zone. right, Wild West. But on June 3rd of 1975, the city laid off its initial 15,000 workers, including thousands of cops and 1,600 firefighters, 20% of the city's entire force. 26 fire companies were just disbanded. When the famous blackout in 1977 occurred, 10,000 cops, 40% of the off-duty force, ignored orders to report for duty. <laughs> Because of this crap. Well, that makes everything make a little bit more sense. <laughs> now, the Rand Corporation had plotted out which fire companies to close. Oh, and since they believed that it was just a social disease or whatever the fuck it is, we didn't need them in the Bronx. So they closed seven fire companies in the South Bronx between 1972 and 1991. And so this idea of allowing these places just to go fallow was really pushed by Roger Starr, the head of the city's housing and public development agency. He's like, what if we just didn't develop our city or house it? Right? In a stream of op-eds, essays, interviews, and books, he felt that sick neighborhoods should be starved of public services so they might die a natural death. Does he know that neighborhoods is like a meta, like a way to describe a group of humans? Apparently not. Why is that disconnect? Like, I feel like we could make the world a better place if we could just get that point across. So he said that they should lie fallow until a change in economic and demographic assumptions makes the land useful once again. This isn't corn. It's not corn. People are not corn. People are not. So... To summarize the dominoes in this instance, starting way back right after World War II, or before World War II, the government went in slum clearance, was breaking up solid social communities, taking homes in valuable Manhattan, taking away jobs, incentivized destruction of property, and then allowing the poor communities that developed because of all of this to go fallow. By the way, during all this, the Son of Sam was active. My fucking God. It's a hellscape. It truly is. Like, what chance do you have? Like, your job's outsourced to fucking upstate New York or whatever. You can't commute. Your house burns down because your landlord hires a fire broker to bring in some arsonist. So he can collect the insurance So money. he can collect the insurance money. You're promised that you can get to live in one of those new housing projects, but that's not going to be done for another nine months. Meantime, it's winter. The, co- the fire department didn't show up when it was on fire because they closed it in your area. One thing that's never mentioned in all the modern day writing about this is how many people died from it. Had to go into the archives to find articles. I could just find articles about it, you know, just about particular incidents. There's no way that says how many people died from all these arson fires. 
A New York Times article from 1979 said that 39 deaths had resulted from arson fires through August of that year. And in 1978, a total of 37 people had died in arson fires. There was one article about four residents dying in a Brooklyn fire. Patricia Riviera, 27, and her two children, Cheryl Lynn, 6, and Alex, 11, were pronounced dead on arrival at Greenpoint Hospital. Miss Riviera and her daughter were trapped in their fourth floor bedroom and Alex in the bathroom. Now, the fourth victim was forced onto a ledge outside her burning fourth floor appointment at the rear of the building and jumped to her death moments before the first firefighters arrived. The suspect was arrested at the hospital and being treated for burns. And also, of course, many, many firefighters suffered serious injuries. Now, Joe Bald and other arsonists were sent to prison, but the damage was done. You had an ash-filled hellscape. It could only be rebuilt. But who gets to rebuild it? It's a great question. So in 1980, there was an article in the Harvard Crimson discussing that, saying that today the South Bronx has the potential for rebirth. And if this renaissance comes, it will result from the dedication of the area's leaders and residents, not from presidential limousine excursions to Charlotte Street. One of the badly burned out streets. The hope for the South Bronx resides in the pride and the spirit of the people who live there. And then their aspiration to rebuild their neighborhoods into the communities they once were. So you did have a lot of nonprofit groups, community groups, and church groups rising up from the ashes, literally, to try to help rebuild these communities. From a 1987 New York Times article. On a summer evening in 1974, a small group of Bronx neighbors and church leaders created a coalition to rescue their deteriorating community. We called ourselves Los Desperados, recalls Genevieve Brooks, who became the group's leader. We picked the name because we were desperate. Our streets were littered with garbage. We had drug traffickers and arson. We needed everything, especially decent housing. She had come to live there when it was a middle-class community and watched it slowly decline. She said, as city authorities filled the apartments with welfare families, landlords stopped repairs, arson to collect insurance became commonplace, and the city finally leveled block after block of decaying buildings. Now, after years of working, the Desperados had managed to reclaim or build homes for nearly 1,000 families. Mayor Koch named them as one of the 10 neighborhood groups to participate in rehabilitating 1,000 city-owned housing units. The Desperados also cultivated ties to merchants, introduced security patrols to the neighborhood, and worked with the police on crime prevention and organizing civilian patrols. Now, in 1994, there was an article about some of this rebuilding in the Bronx. With more than $1 billion in public dollars trained on the South Bronx between 1986 and 1994, 19,000 apartments have been refurbished and more built. The Bronx Borough President, Fernando Ferrer, said, We're reversing flight. We're keeping middle and working class people in the Bronx. Now, Paul Grogan, the president of the local initiative support corporation, said there's been no more dramatic revival of a community in the country. It's particularly dramatic because the South Bronx went so far down, down to rubble. If it were more widely known what happened in the South Bronx, it could be a symbol of the possibility of revival. I think about what they're saying. Like, this was literally wiped out. It was destroyed. It was literally wiped out and it came back. And isn't that amazing? All It makes me think about Katrina. Oh, yeah. It makes me think about New Orleans. But then. It was very similar community groups coming out, helping rebuild. But then I think about the people who are in New Orleans now that I'm like, 
mm, girl, your mama can't make no room. <laughs> you know, I think about those people that are like moving in from out of state and like, you know, opening up like idea companies <laughs> and cupcake bakeries or whatever. And I'm like, do we need 17 cupcake bakeries in one block? And I, like, I don't know how they avoided it. I would be very curious to know how, wait. Avoided it? No, I'm just remembering. Now, say say the names of the places where the fires were happening again. Oh, Bushwick? Bushwick, the yes. Bronx? The Bronx. The white people found it, didn't Brooklyn? they? Brooklyn? They found it, didn't they? NPR reported last year, forget the Bronx is burning. These days, the Bronx is gentrifying. The boroughs saw a record $3.3 billion invested in developmental projects spanning more than 14.2 million square feet in 2016, up 37% from 2015. Okay, so awkward, awful question. Yes. Did the diabolical plan work? It seems like it did. Oh my God, don't tell anyone. Like, it sounds terrible, you know, but it's like, they said, hey, we're just going to let this die until we can get a new demographic in there. I mean, they literally said that. Yeah. I mean, you can see it with Katrina, and you can see it with the Bronx, you know, that these places that had such strong, unique cultural communities are being uprooted by gentrification. And some of that's rent going up, some of it's property value going up, which you would think would be great. If your property value went up by 50%, that sounds fantastic, but then you have to pay property tax on it. You have to pay like New Ah. Orleans property tax or New York property tax or Austin property tax, which are all so high. Yeah. And like I literally saw an article today about in Austin, like all these protests because in East Austin is the traditional like Hispanic and black communities and it is not anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Like, they are completely being pushed out. Like, the other day, they uh, a landlord, like, just painted over this, like, famous mural that is, like, a Hispanic heritage mural. <laughs> I mean, that's a symbol. <laughs> it's, like, such an obvious one. So, again, these people that they were trying to bring back, these middle-class, working-class communities are being pushed out. And just like it was done in Harlem... In the 1920s, communities are being broken up and they're just being pushed to wherever they can find a house. Like to go large with a metaphor here for a second. We saw what happened on like a continent wide scale when we were like, what if we just move them off their land and stop the communal living (laughs) and don't allow them to practice their unique cultural systems when we decided maybe Indians don't actually own anything. And that worked out real well. Yeah. Worked out for people that are moving them. Just like it worked out to build a park. And just like allowing a community just to go fallow. Worked out for the hipsters? Worked out for the realtors. (laughs) When you commodify a space where real life happens, where you make that an asset, in instances where you say, this is for the good of all, And don't consider what you're actually doing, what the human cost is to each and every person you're affecting. It becomes easy to disconnect the actions you're taking and the consequences they will have. Because if you're looking at demographic shifts, if you're looking at a graph, if you're looking at streamlining a fire service, it's just numbers. 
But when you look at breaking up these solid communities where people share a culture and a history and have a social network that they can rely on, they have somebody to watch their kids for five minutes when they run down the street, they have somebody they know and trust that knows somebody that can get them a job, they, they use that community, they live in it, it matters. And there's a certain sanctity to that, that none of those charts or think tanks or master plans can account for. Where we live is who we are. And not just where we live, but the community that surrounds us. And the people we rely on. So when someone comes to your home and tells you that you need to give it up, that you can't have it anymore, or tells you you don't know what to do with your own money, you need a guardian, or tells you that a little benign neglect never hurt anyone, and they say it's for the good of all, Chances are, that's just a story. Yeah, that's just a story. 